roll up by bad for two, but the bell rings. So we're two for two for so we're two two for two with time. Oh God, sorry. <laughs> okay. Hello everyone, and welcome to Let's Go to the Ring, where we take a look at the good old days, and not so good old days, of World Championship Wrestling, series by series. I'm your host, Bob Moore, and I'm joined by a man still struggling to come out of a deep Bachwinkle funk, Alec Pridgen. Yeah, it's, it's pretty deep, I to say. <laughs> How's it going tonight, Al? Pretty good, other than the funk that you just mentioned. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, everything's good otherwise, how about you? Uh, doing okay, doing okay. Um, going well here at the moment. Nice. Tonight, we're going to be taking a look at Slamboree 94, A Night with the Classics. Slamboree 94 was held on May 22nd, 1994, at the Philadelphia Civic Center in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, in front of 4,000 fans. That's 2,700 paid, and earned 100,000 pay-per-view buys. Now, that's lower in-person attendance than last year, but the same pay-per-view buys. Interesting. 100000 isn't bad for WCW in this period, though it's about to feel like it is. Because the arrival of Hulk Hogan means that the next show after this, Bash at the Beach, gets more than double. 230000 Nice. It's worth noting, though, that Hogan's first Starcade, 1994, gets only 140000 which is still more than double what it actually deserved. <laughs> yeah, for, oh, for sure. I think in that case, isn't it, wasn't it pretty close to 93s as well? At least not a dramatic jump up. Right, yeah. The 100,000 range is kind of the standard for their shows in general, it seems, up until 94. Right. The Starcades start really taking off, I think, with 96. Yeah. I will say, looking at the page for the arena that you're at, it says it can hold around 9,600 people for basketball. Okay. Which would be an uh, entire circle, most likely. So, yeah. But also probably a little bit further back from the ring. So, yeah, I'm not sure exactly what the attendance should be, but probably 4,000 is still low. Yeah, I feel like less than half of the max capacity is definitely too low. Yeah, yeah. So, does Slamboree 1994 share more than a first letter with that year's Starcade and the foul substance to which that year's Starcade could accurately be compared? To find out, let's go to the ring. Tonight, hang on for the ride of your life as the past collides with the present. Take a step back in time with your favorite legendary greats and relive some of their finest moments in wrestling. Then, taking it to the mat, today's WCW superstars will place everything on the line, trying to make a little history of their own. Live from the city of brotherly love, ring the bell. It's World Championship Wrestling Slamboree 94, a Legends Reunion. There was one dark match to open the show that was Pretty Wonderful versus Brian and Brad Armstrong. So we probably missed the America jacket there, Al. Yeah, yeah. You may also miss early Road Dog as well. That, that is true. That is true, yep. 
The show opens with a similar video to last year's show, showing off black and white pictures of wrestlers from the past, before presenting a nice arrangement of color images of the current crop. I like the streaks of teal and purple flashing across the screen during the first part. It was a neat way to add some contrast, and it all looked really classy. And uh, as a bonus, the narrator gets to finish this time before the host comes in. That's true. It is weird that he says tells him to ring the bell before actually finishing the intro, though. <laughs> that is true, yeah. It, it's like he, he's trying to get interrupted, but they don't do it. Yeah, and it feels like they've cut the sentences a little bit short, doesn't it? At a couple yeah, points where they almost overlap. It's not as bad as, what was the one? Uh, was it 99? Starcade 99, oh, where yeah. it was like, it sounded like it had been cut and pasted together? Yes, yeah. <laughs> it was like partial sentences or just incomplete sentences and just, yeah, shoved together. Yeah. yeah. Mean Gene Okerlund welcomes us to the show and to the city of brotherly love. Sadly, not the city of brother love. That's true, yeah. He brings out the legends who walk out from behind the shiny blue curtains while black and white pictures of them show. We've got Ole Anderson, The Assassin, Penny Banner, Red Bastine, I mispronounced his name last time, I'm sorry, uh, and his old photo looks like he should be playing Tarzan. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I see that one. Joining them, Tully Blanchard, who comes out in one of his old robes as a nice touch, The Crusher, Don Curtis, who looks either like a stern police chief in a cop show, or the businessman father who has to learn to show his love for his family in a Christmas movie. Yeah. Couldn't decide which. Yeah, I can see that. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, Terry Funk. But wait, Terry Funk doesn't show up. Instead, poor Vern Gagne walks out while Gene is announcing Funk, and just kind of awkwardly stands there for a bit, looking very confused, moving back and forth, and finally getting an indication from someone that he should just go ahead and walk off screen to let the next person come out, just as Gene finally starts announcing him. <laughs> yes. I can't remember, is Gene in a spot where he like can't see that, and he's just reading his, his cards on I'm the- guessing, I think he might have been facing away from the stage or something, yeah, yeah so he might not have been able to see it. I, I will say, I'm pretty sure that Funk's lack of appearance plays into an angle that we see later on in the show. Yes. But still, it looks like Ganya was cued early all the same, and it got really awkward really fast. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, because yeah, cause they're, pu- they're pushing him out like it's a conga line. Yes. So then the sudden pause in the middle, it throws the whole thing off, yeah. Uh, also, they misspelled his name. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they- yeah, they forgot the E on the end. After Vern, we get hard-boiled Haggerty, who has quite a mustache, though it's still nothing compared to Ox Baker's last year. No one beats Ox Baker. No. Larry Hennig is next, misspelled as Henning. That is the most common spelling mistake like, in all of wrestling. Yes. I mean, it, uh, honestly, all of us do that. Yeah. I think I've done, I do, I did it all the time with, with Kurt, but uh, <laughs> you are honoring the man <laughs> for the whole thing. Right, 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 yeah. It, it's one thing, yeah, it's one thing, like, if I write it wrong in, like, a Facebook post or something. Right, yeah. I mean, there's, there should be a second person that checks all the spelling on these. But as we established Vern moments ago, clearly no one is. That's true, yes. Killer Kowalski is next, yet another person labeled Master of the Clawhold. The Big Cat, Ernie Ladd, Wahoo McDaniel, Angelo Mosca, Starkate 83 reference there. Yep. Harley Race, Ray Stevens, Luthez. Johnny Weaver, who is the master of the sleeper, known as the Weaver Lock. <laughs> or just, you know, master of the Weaver Lock is much easier way to say that. It would be, it would be. But they have to identify the name that everyone actually calls it, because no one calls it the Weaver Lock. <laughs> right. 
I just feel like just just call in the master of the weaver lock or call in the master of the sleeper hold. Just yeah, one of yeah, the two. Yeah, just pick one. Mister Wrestling Two and Referee Tommy Young. Yeah, it was uh, cool to see them expanding their honors this year beyond just wrestlers. That's true. Still, only one woman though, which is kind of random. Yeah, yeah. Though at least she was not carried out by nearly naked men this time. Right, right. <laughs> in comparison to last year as well. Last year, if you remember, began with just them all standing squished together in the ring already there. Whereas this, they got an introduction, which is nice. It felt a little bit more polished. Yeah. Yeah. It feels yeah. like we like the show started five minutes late. Like, it may, like maybe they did the procession for the live crowd, and we still get true, to see it. true, very possible. It's weird as well. I just realized I called this more polished when they had someone milling about on the stage for a while before he was actually introduced and misspelled two people's names. But but that's WCW for you. Right. And the milling about thing, it is Vern Gagne. It's not that surprising to see him do that. <laughs> Gene throws to Tony Schiavone and co-host Bobby the Brain Heenan. We are into the Heenan era, which makes me very happy. Indeed. Tony says that there will be a lot of great title matches, but they don't know who Flair's opponent's going to be. Heenan says that Flair must be nuts to face a mystery opponent. On the subject of being nuts, Tony talks up the team-up between Cactus Jack and Kevin Sullivan against the Nasty Boys. Al, question for you. If Kevin Sullivan is a druid, what class is Cactus Jack? I'd say Berserker. Yeah, yeah, Barbarian. Barbarian Berserker, yeah. Make, makes sense, makes sense. I, I would yeah. agree with that, yeah. Tony brings in Nick Bockwinkle, says he can't be introduced, and proceeds to introduce him. Huh? <laughs> yeah. Bockwinkle gives me horrible Starcade 1994 flashbacks by opening his statements with, There is no question. <laughs> he requests Sting's presence, and Sting walks out in a suit so loud, I'm pretty sure it blew out my eardrums. <laughs> Bright, bright red with a red, blue, and green tie with a wild pattern. I was hoping for some face paint too, but no luck yet. This is business sting, so I guess face paint is insufficiently serious. Yeah. Now, I can't forget, does he still have his rat tail at this point? Uh, I did not notice it, at least. Because that definitely messes with the business vibe to have the rat tail. Isn't that 92? I think that's 92. Yeah. Okay, Sting, step in here if you would, and and Nick, I know you have a statement you have to read concerning not only this event, but of course the international world title. There have been a lot of things taking place in the past 24 hours, and I want to read this statement, and I want everyone to listen to it. World Championship Wrestling was notified by the International Championship Committee that they have ruled that the recent title match between Sting and Rick Rude in Fukuoka, Japan, to be officially recorded as a no contest. This decision was reached after viewing the tape of the match where Rude used the championship belt and subsequently came off the top rope with a knee to the head of his opponent. The WCW Board of Directors have agreed with this decision and have ruled that Rick Rude be stripped of the title and that the WCW International Heavyweight Title be returned to Sting. Excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, Philly. With all due respect, Mr. Bachwinkle, I have been thinking about this since 9.30 this morning. And I hope that Philly will back me 
100% when I say that I do not like the world title to be won or lost in the boardroom. I want it to happen in the ring. I'm not asking for any favors. I don't want any favors. I do not consider myself the world heavyweight champion. But I would be glad to walk to the ring tonight and wrestle Vader for the world title. Let's just put the title up for grabs. Then I'll do it. That is the only way I'll do it. And so it shall be tonight. You will have the opportunity to go and step into the ring to win this title one more time. So I'm, I'm very confused now at the arrangement between the WCW International Championship Committee and the WCW Board of Directors. Yes. Like, it was already confusing enough, but now apparently the Board of Directors could potentially have overruled the Championship Committee, I guess, is what we're supposed to gather there. Even though, from everything I've been told before, WCW International is actually a different organization. It is, yes. I mean, it, it isn't, but they say it is. Right, yeah. <laughs> Just like in their fictional reality, yeah, what yeah, yeah. are the rules to this? <laughs> right. Well, we had that was it last year where they they mentioned something that would be disqualification. Right. The NWA versus WCW yeah, yeah, yeah. DQ rules. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Um, other than that, I thought this was a short but sweet and nice focused segment to make the best of a bad situation. Um, Al, do you have the details on Rude's injury? Yeah. So the show is called Wrestling Night Aku in Fukuoka, Japan, on May 1st, 1994. So there's actually kind of a big gap here, which is kind of weird. I guess it took them 20 days to decide what to do with the belt. They might have been seeing, is Rude actually out? They might be taking time to see if he can come back or Mm, or not. That's true. Because to be fair, to Rude especially, we've had, what, two shows where he's supposed to be in title matches and they pull him out because he's injured? (sighs) Yeah. Yeah. He's vacated like three different titles that way, so... And he's and up until this one, he had to come back. So, see the logic there. But yeah, they're basically they were wrestling a match in Japan. They don't show in the package. It's kind of weird. Sting does a dive to the outside and lands on Rude. But the problem is there's so there's a mat which is raised off of the ground. Sting lands on Rude and later catches him, but Rude hits his back on the edge of the mat. Mm. And not the floor, so it's this weird, uneven surface. It's just it's just the right bump at the right time, much like uh, HBK's one, right? In nineteen ninety eight, right. it doesn't look like it's a horrific bump. He just sort of rolls over and hits it, but it's the same thing. It's a it's the right place, unfortunately, at the right time. And credit to Rude, they do actually work through the match. That's so actually not the finish of the match, right? So I can't imagine how pleasant that would have been because if it's a career-ending injury for a guy like Rick Rude. That can have been good, felt good in the moment for sure. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, with the timeline, I was thinking about it. It might be that they were still pre-taping at this point to save money. Ah. Uh, so they might be saying it's been a twenty-four hours because they already had pre-filmed Rick Rude footage of him as champion post-match. Yeah, they may have had to work through that. So this might have been literally the first moment that they could actually announce. Yes. That they were doing this. That would make sense. So in terms of their planning, they've had about half a month to prepare for this moment and for the match that they're going to have later tonight. But in terms of the storyline, it's being announced now. Correct. Yeah, that would make sense. I will say, as a side note, looking at that show, the Wrestling Dantaku show, maybe interesting to look at, maybe not to review, but just to look at, Mm -hmm. because it has a Jushin Liger match on it. 
Oh, okay. It has this thing, Root Match, obviously. We've got a lot of people we recognize. Um, Hiroshi Hase is on there. Tumi Fujinami is on there. Tony Inoki's on there in a match oh. against Muda, which is probably interesting. Oh, that'd be interesting, yeah. Yeah. There's a flip side here as well, because in the positive, we have a title match between the Hellraisers. Okay. So the Road Warrior Hawk and Power Warrior, which is Nzuki Sasake. Nice. Against the Steiner Brothers. Ooh. On the other side, however, we also have an El Gigante match. Oh. It's only three minutes out of a okay, okay, two-hour show. Okay, it's short. It's okay. <laughs> yeah, no. Well, yeah, that might be a neat one to see if we can find. Yeah, yeah. We should look at. But yeah, I thought uh, Bachwinkle made it through this one without stumbling all over his words like he did at Sarcade 94. And Sting did a really good job of turning the crowd's disappointment with the ruling into excitement for an upcoming match in just a few short words. Yeah. So, fine example of taking lemons and making lemonade here, I thought. Mm-hmm. I think my only critique with the promo is that there's no pause or anything after Sting basically lays out his opinion of what wants to happen. It's not like, you know, they tell it to Bakwa, and you're like, oh, let me check with somebody. Like, you have two guys in the ring or something, you talk for right, right. 20, 30 seconds. He's just like, we'll do this instead. Okay, let's do that instead. Yeah, the, the board of directors had to approve stripping Root of the title, but apparently Bachwinkle can just be like, yeah, we're having this title match. Yeah, it's a lot of splitting hairs and bureaucracy in this whole thing. Mm-hmm. You're dealing with the board of directors, like we've mentioned, all this stuff, stripping people of titles. And the fact that Sting doesn't want to go into a match as champion... He wants to go into the match with no champion to determine the champion rather than defending a title. Mm-hmm. So I, I get that logistically, but it's definitely kind of splitting hairs there. Because <laughs> I think the match wasn't going to happen before. It was going to happen. Right. He just doesn't want to go in the match as champion. That's all I remember. Yeah. He doesn't want to be handed the belt. It's the same yeah, thing no, as I get the, that part. the Benoit promo from Starcade 2000, was it? Or was it 99? That was 99, because he, he's gone by 2000. That's right. It was, the, it was the one decent thing in 99. <laughs> Correct, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, I get that. It's just funny. It's like, he's already having the match, but just it's just whether he has the belt when he has a match or not. Right, just, yeah. yeah. But yeah, I get it. Also during the segment, we get a few shots of some wrestling fans that have become quite famous. I saw uh, ECW's hat guy in there, mm-hmm. as well as Vladimir the Superfan. Oh, yeah. <laughs> There's like two of those guys and Vladimir. Those are the ones I know. I know there were, I, I'm sure there was another one in there. Yeah. That's a famous one, but those are the two that I actually know. So Yeah. Two of them you see together, and then Vladimir's off somewhere else. I don't know yeah. why they never hung out, but yeah. Tony throws to our first match. So our first match is Johnny B. Bad versus Stunning Steve Austin with Colonel Parker for Austin's WCW United States Heavyweight Championship. The referee for this one is Randy Anderson. Bad comes out in a big, sparkly pink cape with his name, big red lips, and Philly rules on the back. I do not envy the artists that had to put together big, sparkly red lips. I'll tell you that. (laughs) Good job, though. Yeah. He sprays sparklers and proclaims it a good day to be a bad man, and fires off his bad blasters into the crowd to ensure that everyone who fights outside the ring for the rest of the night will be covered in confetti. Yes, and they are. Yes, yes, they are. (laughs) Announcer Michael Buffer almost calls Austin a former world heavyweight champion, but corrects to former TV champ. Mm-hmm. The fans constantly chant at Parker throughout this match, and I never got what they were saying. Did you? No. Even when you're watching, I could not make out what they were saying. I was really listening hard, and I could not oh, yeah, figure yeah. it out. Yeah. I, I was saying the same thing. I should see if I can get what they're saying. Nope, I can't get it. Bad gets an early arm drag and headlock takeover, surprising Austin. But Austin shoves him into the corner and taunts him on the break. 
so an angry bad takes him down and works a hammerlock, but can't quite turn it into a pin. Austin responds with his own rapid series of takedowns and ground strikes, but gets caught with a jawbreaker and retreats outside where Parker fans him with his cowboy hat. <laughs> that was a nice moment too, because it really sets um, Heenan up, because Heenan can talk about how important managers are. Yes. Because the yeah. manager tells him to go outside here, and when you catch your breath, then you know, re- reset yourself for this match. Yeah. yeah. He'd know, so. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, yeah. Tony notes Sherry Martell is in the crowd. We get a lot of shots of her throughout the night. Back in, Bad works the arm, and he and Austin trade holds. With Bad trying to escape a headlock, Austin goes for the tights, but realizes that Anderson can see that, so he snaps his hand up to use the hair to take Bad down instead. Brilliant spot there. <laughs> oh yeah, that's great. Heenan says that fear can be useful, preventing overconfidence, and asks Tony if he's ever had butterflies in his stomach. Tony says, sure he did, the first night he worked with Heenan. (laughs) Heenan claims that was indigestion. (laughs) Heenan makes a rather questionable joke about Wahoo McDaniel selling Indian blankets out on the corner. Austin tries to slam free of a bad armbar, but Bad just holds on and rolls through. Nice spot. Austin gets free with the hair and levers Bad into the air, but Bad flips forward to take him down to the mat in almost a flipping pile driver. That was a cool spot, I thought. Oh, yeah, it was nice. Bad gets two counts with a crossbody and an inside cradle. Parker retreats to the other side of the ring to escape people chanting at him. They really get in his face. and I, I, they, they are totally riled up about him in particular tonight. Yeah. The problem, I think, with hearing the chanting is that most of it's coming on the other side of the camera. Yeah. They're never next to the camera when chanting, so can't quite get it. Yeah. Huge Austin double axe handle flattens bad, but Austin hurt his arm, too. Austin aggressively stomps, knees, and chokes bad, and Parker sneaks in, choking with his handkerchief. Heenan jokes that Vern Gagne was the missing Terry Funk. He just hadn't been to the hair club for men yet. (laughs) Tony is completely caught off guard by that and just laughs helplessly for a few moments. It's a great moment. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Suplex from the apron and a knee drop earn Austin a two-count. He levers Bad into another two-count off a reverse chin lock. Bad reverses an Austin gut-wrench suplex into his own very cool spot and starts fighting back, including a massive clothesline and a mistimed dropkick. Knee lift by Bad, but Parker distracts Anderson. Bad clearly sees that happen, but still tries for the pin anyway. To no one's surprise, Anderson's still distracted. Yeah. Babe faces are sometimes really dumb in wrestling. Yeah, I'm guessing he was just actually checking, oh, wait, is this time for that spot? And just didn't think what that would look like, but oh well. <laughs> it's very possible, yeah. Bad grabs Parker. Austin tries an ambush, but Bad ducks, so Austin nails Parker. Roll up by Bad for two, but the bell rings. So we're two for two with timekeeper mistakes and Austin matches on this series. At least the lights are staying on this time. <laughs> That's true. Bad gets two off a top rope sunset flip, but Austin pokes him in the eyes and grabs a side headlock. Bad tries a back suplex, but Austin kicks off the ropes and pretty much just takes the move normally, but shuffles on top a bit awkwardly for the three count and the win. I'm guessing that ending was supposed to be a bit smoother. Austin probably supposed to outright land on top or twist midway or something like that, but something went wrong and he couldn't get on top in time. Yeah. So instead, it just kind of looks like he takes a normal back suplex and then ignores it. (laughs) Yeah, a a bit, yeah. Points for the idea anyway. Austin celebrates with his belt, but Bad angrily decks him. Thoughts on this one? 
thought it was a nice match. Uh, they kept the pace really good, and they kept it really competitive. <laughs> they definitely have pretty good chemistry. They worked together quite a bit over the next couple of years. In his arguably his biggest night of his career, Austin would fight Johnny B. Bad under his Mark Mara persona in WWF. Right, right. On his way to the Jake Roberts match. Correct, yeah. So he's not the guy that he beats to win King of the Ring, but he's the guy who fights on the same show. That's cool. It's interesting seeing younger, the younger versions of them in their other incarnations. Yeah, like, in uh, very yeah. different gimmicks. <laughs> yes, very, very much so. <laughs> the wild man, Mark Marrow. It's very different than Johnny B. Bad. Yeah. Other than the confusing whatever the hell the crowd chant is supposed to be, I liked how much the crowd really into the match. Maybe because I'm used to certain matches like the Dick Bachwinkle Dory Funk Deer match where it's very silent and then polite applause at the end. Yeah. For it. It's nice to see a frenzy or a frenzy crowd, especially for an opening mid card match like this. I was torn on it myself because I felt like they were really involved in the match, but at the same time it felt like they at times were trying to make themselves part of the show. Mm-hmm. That's a that's a Philly thing for sure. Yeah, yeah I know there's a we're not hostile chant and I'm like, who cares? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> So I, I appreciated their fervor for the wrestling, but there were points, just a few points over the show where I was like, okay, guys, cool it a bit. <laughs> yeah, there's a thing where crowd's trying to hijack a show for sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah the only thing is definitely the finish is kind of awkward. Mm-hmm. I think they're trying to do the sort of float over counter to a back suplex. Right. Which is normally done at the top or second rope. You sort of rotate as you fall. So that's maybe a little easier. It's kind of a weird mix between that and the the move Bret Hart did many times, where you push off the corner and pin the guy. Right. Use the WrestleMania 8 and a couple other times. It's like, it's not quite either of those spots. It doesn't really work, but you can appreciate what they're going for. Right, absolutely. You can tell where they're trying to go. It doesn't ruin it by any stretch of the imagination. It yeah. just feels you have that momentary disconnect of, wait, he took he definitely took that move. <laughs> Yeah, it reminded me a bit of the opening Luger Sting match from the One Star Arcade, the Iron Man show. Yes. Where they sort of, they're supposed to like fall over the ropes and Luger ends up on top, but... Kind of ends up a little bit all yeah. tangled up and falling over slowly, yeah. It just bit. doesn't go as smooth as you want sometimes. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, it's live. I mean, what are you going to do, right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm in agreement on it. This was a good opener. I did feel it was maybe a little too reliant on mat wrestling for a little bit too long. It feels like it's a good part of the match, and it's important with Austin showing the injury to his arm bothering him on strikes, and Bat's ribs progressively becoming more of a weak point, but it just goes on a little bit long and slows the match down more than I expected with these two. Mm-hmm. Other than that, though, they put on a good show and both have plenty of character to help kick things off really strong. There were a few sloppy spots, most notably as we just discussed the ending, but nothing that hurts the match very much. And Austin puts on quite a show of heel work with some great, subtle moments. Well, both guys got some nice counters in here and there. So this kept my interest and told a really good story. I just could have done with a bit faster pace for my part, since it was the opener. Mm-hmm. Johnny B. Bad would end up challenging for a different title at the very next show, the Bash the Beach, the rebranded Beach Blast. This time he'd be challenging for the TV title. And on the other side... Defending champion, Steve Austin, is defending his title against Ricky Steamboat. Ooh. It's also good. Yeah. We cut to Mean Gene, who says that he'll be talking to the legends after he shows the hotline. 1-900-909-9900. <laughs> I have actually missed that. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
I was thinking, yeah, we, we haven't had something through the hotline in, in ages. Yes, yeah. I think they might have mentioned it briefly last last year, but it wasn't Gene doing it yet, so he doesn't have that that particular cadence. Right. One place Gene, as people have noted, Gene gets what was it, getting like a third of the cut for that. I think it was. It's, yeah, it's. I forget exactly what it is. So he's getting a good cut of that. So he's inclined to promote it. Yes. So the question of the night apparently is: Should Cactus Jack be banned from WCW? Kind of seems a little bit late to be asking that since he actually has a match tonight. Yes. I'm still confused as to why that's, that's even an issue. Yeah. He's not a bad guy at this point. No, I guess it's just he's so wild and crazy and violent. Yeah. He brings in Wahoo McDaniel and Ernie Ladd, both former football players in addition to being wrestlers. Ladd says it's great to be honored and he's glad to be here and see wrestlers that he's wrestled with and against. And it's exciting when your own sport pays you tribute. Gene builds up that he's going to get a bigger honor later in the evening. And Ladd says he thanks God for the wonderful things that have happened to him over the years. Gene says wrestling was better for having him in it. Gene turns to Wahoo and notifies him that Heenan was cracking jokes about him earlier. Wahoo wonderfully redeems Heenan's joke by saying his blankets are good Indian blankets and Heenan might need one when it's time to bury him. (laughs) (laughs) wahoo says it's great to see his old friends and he looks forward to the night thought it was uh nice bits from both of these guys and i really liked wahoo turning heenan's jokes back on him there yeah it's a rare thing to happen honestly so (laughs) i mean actually when we watched the first time it's getting a real andre vibe with ernie ladd yeah some kind of how he stands and just how big he is he's a really big dude Oh, yeah, yeah. He towers, in the later Hall of Fame segment, he towers over, like, everybody else in the ring. Yes. Well, on top of that, he, he dressed like late-stage Andre as well. That outfit, in Andre has that same outfit, I think. <laughs> true, true. It looks just like an Andre outfit, yeah. Yeah. No, it was, it was nice to see them honor both of them, because when I've heard, Ernie Ladd did a lot for people outside of wrestling, helped yes. a lot of charity work, and so it's good to see him honored. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Gene throws to video from Dusty Rhodes, who was busy in Hollywood, apparently. This is Dusty Rhodes, the American Dream. I'm having a ball. That ain't all out here in Hollywood. You know, Dusty Rhodes, the American Dream, talking about one of the greatest pay-per-views in the history of pay-per-views. Slamboree, the Legends reunion, and hope so much to be there with all the great legends. I'm working a little overtime on a major project out here in Hollywood, but my heart is there. My soul is there. I want to tell my good friend Ray Steven. Ray Steven called and said, Dusty Rhodes, the American Dream, how does it feel to be a legend? I said, I ain't retired. I ain't a legend. I'm in my prime. So the bottom line is, Everybody have a big time at the pay-per-view in Philadelphia. Legends reunion. And most of all, I want to tell Dustin Rhodes, it's a big night for you, brother. So life is like a winding railroad. Never ending. You know what I mean? So you got to keep your hands on the throttle and your eyes on the rail. Watch your back, kid, because dad ain't going to be there. Have a great pay-per-view. WCW, Mac and Dream from Hollywood. Give that million-dollar smile. Uh, Dusty pulls the most wonderful expression as it fades off of him. <laughs> he, he really does. Yeah. Yes. I love Dusty Rhodes, and this is a bonkers promo. I appreciate him working in some story content, even here with his advice to Dustin. Yes. Though, admittedly, it's his own son, so. True. But it is good to see them using these promos to highlight the current roster again. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dusty references 
working in Hollywood. And the only thing I could find related to this was him appearing on a TV show called Burke's Law. Correct. He was in an episode called Who Killed Skippy's Master mm-hmm. about a murder at a kennel club show. We definitely need to give that a watch. Yeah. It appears that it is available on YouTube at present, actually. Oh, there you go. Now, I do have to note, though, I'm not sure that's what he's talking about here, because IMDb shows the original air date for that show was May 4th, 1994, which would have been a couple weeks prior to this show. But I didn't see anything else non-wrestling related uh, after it in 94, so who knows? And then getting to the taping schedule, he might have taped that you know, three weeks ago, Yeah, so it when it actually was appropriate. Or he may have been doing promo work for the show still or something like that. I don't know. There's probably some post-actual air date stuff that he had to do, too. It's also possible that going to WCW, they might have played this promo when it was actually topical and then just played it again tonight. That's entirely possible as well. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Classic uh, Dusty. Yes. Classic, wonderfully insane Dusty. Absolutely. (laughs) We cut back to the ring for our next match. So our second match is Starcade Series Match of the Night Champion, Tully Blanchard, versus Terry Funk. The referee for this one is Nick Patrick. They basically build it up, as you'll probably cover throughout the commentary, about how they're both from Texas and the uh, Warwick families and all that kind of stuff. Tully Blanchard was supposed to be on last year's show. Yes. But they famously possibly lowballed him on his offering. He just didn't show up. <laughs> So much like Scott Hall, he'll show up to a show a year late. That still counts, I guess. (laughs) Gordon Soley has replaced Tony for this one, so we've got Soley and Heenan. Blanchard looks thrilled to be back and struts out in the robe that I think he wore at one of the early Starcades. I think it's 86, maybe? I'm not sure. That sounds right, yeah. Which him and Dusty in the first blood match? Yeah. His music, interestingly enough, is the same song that they later used for Chris Jericho in WCW during his early face run. Oh, yeah. That is Did you catch that? It's the I, yeah the, the teen movie song. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll do that one, yeah. We see lots of fans giving the Four Horsemen sign, of course, and we hear someone cough really, really loudly into a microphone. <laughs> Funk has a great sort of Western movie piece of music, of course. He comes out in cowboy gear with a branding iron. There's a very weird juxtaposition as we see a sign proclaiming that Funk rules Philly, but right in front, someone is giving thumbs down. (laughs) (laughs) We get an EC dub chant by the fans, and Funk goes out to stand by Hat Guy and pose for a bit. (laughs) I I noted, actually, uh, Nick Patrick appears to have the goatee Hmm. that we more normally see in the NWO era. Interesting. That was interesting. I I swear I never saw him with that before the NWO era before. Huh. Yeah. Funk, still outside, hurls his chaps at Tully, so Tully charges and they brawl outside. Back in, Blanchard nails Funk with top rope knee drop to the neck. Ow. Mm -hmm. Great Blanchard suplex, too. Funk grabs the fan's crutches, but Blanchard attacks and Funk hilariously hurls them skyward into the ring. (laughs) (laughs) Patrick goes to return the crutches as Funk hits a stalling atomic drop on Blanchard. Patrick orders them back to the ring, and Funk takes Blanchard back in for a neckbreaker for two. Soli talks about both being second-generation wrestlers, and Heenan builds up their various accomplishments, but notes that everyone in Texas hates each other, as Funk proves him right by hurling Blanchard to the ramp and calling him a son of a (laughs) 
Funk hurls Blanchard from the ramp to the floor and smacks him with some of the side paneling. Then, back in the ring, Pyle drives him onto it, though Funk clearly takes most of that. Yeah, he did. Patrick warns him not to bring more furniture into the ring. Back outside for a Funk DDT, and Patrick tells the gentleman they'd best get back in the ring, as Soli gives us a very rare mention of Patrick's own in-ring career that was cut short by injury. Yeah, that's right. We, we never really get that mentioned. And in fact, like later on when he is NWO heel ref and is actually having some matches, he always seems to just be treated as, you know, a fighting referee, not yeah. as a former wrestler himself. That is very true, yeah. Yeah. Back in, Funk hits a pile driver and tries a moonsault, but Blanchard rolls away and Funk eats Matt. Blanchard drapes an arm for two and lands hard strikes, shocking Soli and Heenan. Funk reverses a whip and hurls Blanchard into Patrick to knock Patrick out. Funk sets up a folding chair and tries to pile drive Blanchard off the top rope onto it, but ends up going butt first into it himself. I'm not sure if that was an intentional counter or if they just mistimed the spot. It looked like Blanchard held the rope so Funk went down without him. Yeah, it, that did not look like that was a planned spot. Yeah, I'm guessing they just kind of mistimed the release. Yeah. They trade hard blows, and Patrick wakes up to try to stop them, so Blanchard whips around and just knees him hard in the gut. <laughs> Punk gets his branding iron and nails Blanchard, then bends it around his neck, and Patrick calls for the bell, disqualifying both. Punk goes out and steals Hat Guy's straw hat, elbow drops it, and bites it. <laughs> Heenan notices Funk coming their way and hurriedly yells, I like you, Funk. Gordon doesn't like you. Gordon's never liked you. <laughs> Doug Dillinger and security escort Funk away, as Gordon generously checks if Heenan is okay, despite the blatant attempt to throw him under the bus. <laughs> yes. Gordon calms himself down by advertising the Slamboree 94 Collector's Pack, only $24.95, including shipping and handling. You get a t-shirt and a program. Ooh. Soli tells Heenan he'll see him later, and Heenan says he's not sure what's going to happen with Funk in the building still. Thoughts on this one? It was an interesting one because they definitely, for better or worse, go for like a real, like natural, gritty sort of fight between the two of them. Yes. There's matches we've seen where they're really intense fights, but they still work moves in. Like the match I, I like more than you do, the Stan Hansen Vader match from the previous series. Yeah. That one for me was a good mix of the sort of fighting, but still being a match. Just doesn't end, obviously. Much like this one kind of ends when they both attack the referee and just kind of walk off while fighting. Yeah. So I don't like this one quite as much as that one, because honestly, this wouldn't quite work as well. Because like you mentioned, the pile driver spot with the wood board clearly did nothing to Blanchard. <laughs> yes. <laughs> He's nowhere near the board whatsoever. Yeah. It's cool spot like that, and as you mentioned, the whole thing was on the top rope. It definitely feels like Blanchard's holding on because he doesn't want to go down until they're ready. Right. And Funk goes down before then and just sort of falls and they sort of go with it. And you you can understand because I mean that's a crazy spot to be doing in the first place. Yes. So you can understand them being like Blanchard being like, Are are we sure? Are we sure we're ready? I'm gonna go yeah. head first on a chair here. <laughs> oh yeah, because for Blanchard's part, he can't he has to balance himself on the ropes there. No matter how much you trust Terry Funk, obviously you got to trust the guy pretty well to even try a spot like this. Yes. I think even then you don't trust him so much where 
your whole body is just sort of hanging in the air, and he's the only thing basically keeping you from falling straight down head first towards the mat. Yes. So it's definitely a matter of, like with DDT, where you slap the guy in the back and then go down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they definitely just didn't time that right, and it's, I guess they didn't feel like trying it again or doing anything else, they just gave up on it. Yeah, well, I think the chair is pretty much wrecked by Funk falling on right. it, too, so. <laughs> For sure. It was one, I liked it better the second time I watched it, because, yeah, I appreciated sort of grittiness of, of it all, but yeah, it's... It didn't quite work as well for me, like I said, as the Vader Hansen match that had the same sort of feel for a couple years earlier. Just because they didn't, they didn't quite nail everything like they wanted to, unfortunately. Yeah, true. I think we can agree, though, that this was a much better Legends single match than last year. Oh, yeah, for sure. 100%. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I'm kind of with you. This was mostly a brawl. It was quite an intense and hard-hitting one, sure. with both willing to absorb some really heavy strikes. And they did mix in some other action, like Blanchard's early suplex that was a thing of beauty. Mm -hmm. The double disqualification was a little disappointing to me. It does fit Funk's lunatic personality and Blanchard's general willingness to cheat and contentious relationship with referees, but it was still a bit disappointing. They did make the most of their space, too, uh, fighting everywhere that they could. Mm -hmm. So I don't think I call this one complex, but it was fun while it lasted. And it was terrific to see Blanchard again in particular. We did get him among the crowd in the bunkhouse stampede, but the last time we had him in a match where you could actually follow the action was way back at Starcade 87, our fifth episode. Oh, yeah. That's true. We covered that two years ago. My goodness. <laughs> yeah, I didn't think that long, but yeah, that makes sense. I will say, just like I've made to make comparisons between this and the Hanson Vader match, at least this one doesn't follow a no DQ match that makes no use of the no DQ stipulation. Yes. And then it's a DQ, so that's maybe a point for this match. Yes, yes, definitely. But otherwise, otherwise I say about what I said, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I can see that. I can see that. I was kind of surprised to bring up on this that Blanchard would actually debut for ECW as an actual competitor in January 1995. Oh, okay. I did not think he worked for ECW. <laughs> that's interesting. I was like, huh, that's not a fit I would have pictured. He does. I mean, he's been in some brutal matches over the years, and he also has that technician side that they like to call on it at points when mm. they had like Benoit and Malenko in there for a while and stuff. Oh, certainly, yeah. I'm sure he did well there. It's just, yeah, it's it surprising to read that he actually was an active wrestler on the roster. Yeah, yeah, true. We cut back to Jesse Ventura. He recaps a tag team match in which Ric Flair came out to fight Colonel Parker and his team, and Flair comes out to join him. No robe, unfortunately, but quite a wild shirt. I was tra- having trouble trying trying to think of how to describe it, and the best I could come up with was it's kind of Saved by the Bell, but in Thanksgiving colors. <laughs> yeah, I can <laughs> see that. <laughs> yeah. As Flair speaks, we get video footage of him being attacked by a masked man on a prior show. All right, thank you, Gordon and Bobby. It's the Legends Weekend here at Slambury in the City of Brotherly Love. But let me tell you something, there was no brotherly love last night. There was a tag team match that took place. And in this tag team match, there was no Ric Flair at the start of the tag team match. But at the end of it, the nature boy Ric Flair appeared. Why? Because it was Colonel Parker and his boys. Nature boy. It goes just like this, Jesse. I made it very clear to Parker that if he stuck his nose in anyone's business, especially mine, when I was on the scene, I was going to do something about it. Well, I did. And then what happens? The scenario unfolds after weeks of Parker telling us about a six foot seven, 300 pound 
former world champion, out of nowhere, boom, down goes the Nature Boy. Well, right here, tonight, I'm back on my feet. It's Flamboree. It's Legends Reunion 94, and you're right, Jesse. We're in Philadelphia, a big-time sports-minded town that likes two guys that can get in the trenches and fight. You just saw Terry Funk, meaner, nastier than ever before. And you know he wants back in that door big time. So why not make sure that in my moment, I don't walk that aisle one more time as glorious as I've ever been. I'm styling, I'm profiling Jesse, and I don't care who's under that mask, the Nature Boy is gonna be ready, Jesse. But Nature Boy, it's like being the visiting team. You gotta get in, you gotta prepare. How do you prepare for someone you don't know who they are? When you're the world heavyweight champion, Jesse, you stay ready for any kind of action. Philadelphia, you like it hot, you like it heavy, you like it dirty. And the dirtiest player in the game is gonna survive one more time. Woo! Woo! And let's go up to ringside with more action. Love Jesse doing the woo as well. Yeah. A <laughs> uh, good Flair promo here, I thought. Flair's an exceptional heel most of the time, but I'm always impressed by how well he can tweak his style just a bit to make himself a face. Yeah. He doesn't actually become a different character. He just uses his traditional traits in a slightly different light to make them not admirable, per se, but lovable. Yeah, I see that. This nicely built up suspense around Flair's mystery opponent and how he'll deal with fighting someone without knowing who it is in advance. I will say watching back the um, the video footage of where he gets attacked, I do feel a bad for Austin because he's gone from having Pillman as a tag partner, as you saw last year, mm-hmm. to Bunkhouse Buck as a tag team partner. <laughs> a bit of a downgrade. Yeah, yeah, I'll agree with that. <laughs> Otherwise, they're clearly hinting at someone else bigger than who we get as a mystery by mentioning his stats being six or seven former world champion through pounds. It's pretty obvious who they're hinting at there. Yeah. But yeah, it's a good flare promo. It's just, it's nice. Yeah, nice seeing face flare for sure. Uh, I did a good job and Ventura doing the woo is definitely something you don't see very often. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Our third match is the legend Larry Zabisco versus Lord Stephen Regal with Sir William. This is a non-title match, though Regal is TV champion. The referee for this one is Randy Anderson, and we are back to Tony Schiavone and Bobby Heenan as the commentators for this one. Lazer Esco, in the time between times we've seen him wrestle on the show, he's gone back to retirement and doing commentary more than anything else. And they started a program between the two of them, where Zabisco would call, basically call him out for you know the heelish stuff, like grabbing the ropes and cheating, because they're doing this whole thing where he's the TV champ and he can skate by and escape dangerous opponents by outlasting them the 15-minute time limit, yes. but not actually beating them. So essentially, Zabisco is the face commentator calling him out, and eventually Regal hears enough and challenges him to a match, figuring, you know, Zabisco at this point hadn't wrestled in 18 months, or at least on TV and at least in this company. It's easy to pick on the guy who, can't, who he thinks can't fight back. The reason why it's not a title match is because, again, this is... Officially, his first match back in 18 months, so obviously he hadn't done any ranking to you know get up the charts. Yeah, because WCW cares so much about that. Oh, yeah, 100%. <laughs> Which is why they replaced one tag partner and kept the match for the titles later on. Yes. Larry comes out to some great kind of gladiator or adventure music, wearing a sparkling jacket with a Z on the front and legend on the back. 
Regal's cape remains awesome. Absolutely. Tony notes that Regal said he hates Philly and is the worst city on the face of the planet. Tony also points out a sign in the crowd, Kane the Brain. Heenan says they wanted to play the title role in a remake of Citizen Kane. Philly is the same city that would later do the Kane Dewey chant, which... Yes. So, yeah, that's the thing with them, I guess. Regal ignores Zabisco and yells at the crowd, but Zabisco just waits for him, looking amused. Heenan notes that Zabisco read War and Peace in half an hour and has interests ranging from butterflies to scuba diving. It's a real hard sell for Zabisco here. It's kind of interesting to see. <laughs> yeah. The crowd verbally abuses Sir William. Regal finally goes for some grapples, but Zabisco dodges around and takes him down, then calls him a piece of crap. <laughs> Zabisco frustrates Regal with takedowns and Thunderbolt Patterson-style bobbing and weaving, then spin kicks him out through the ropes. The crowd yells at Regal and Sir William, and Sir William tells a little fat man to sit down <laughs> as Regal pulls his amazing facial expressions. Yeah. Back in, Regal and Zabisco counter holds, and Zabisco gets two off reversing an abdominal stretch into an inside cradle, then locks on his own abdominal stretch just to prove a point. Zabisco uses the ropes, of course, because face Zabisco is still Zabisco. Yes. <laughs> Anderson finally catches him, and as Zabisco argues, Regal flips him down to the mat for two. They rapidly trade throws and strikes. Heenan jokes that Sherry, taking notes, is interested in Regal's crown jewels. And Tony agrees before pausing and asking, The what? <laughs> Heenan insists he just meant actual jewelry. Sure you did, Heenan. I don't know what, what else you would possibly get from that. Sir William encourages Regal by telling him the Queen just called. I feel like it's more of a distraction, though. Yeah. The Queen just called, what, huh? Oh, well. There has to be something ceremonial he has to do in that case, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Am I finally in my nighting? I'd start to leave now and fly to England? Yeah, what's going on? <laughs> Zabisco uses a variety of arm holds and even uses Regal's own trick of stepping on the back of his knee to force a person down, pointed out by Tony. Yes, nice touch. Regal finally loses his temper and lands nasty European uppercuts in the corner, beating Zabisco down for two. Regal uses a variety of arm and neck holds, including a cool standing cravat, and smashes Zabisco with forearm shots anytime he slips free. Sir William sneaks in a kick at one point. Heenan claims he couldn't tell who it was, and Tony asks who else it would be, a cameraman? Heenan says, you never know, it's a tough town. Yeah, yeah. Jackie Crockett is a tough guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah true. <laughs> Regal brings Zabisco into a cool variant bow and arrow hold that looks incredibly painful. It does, it looks really bad. <laughs> I mean, it looks really good, but it looks really painful. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. gotta be flexible for that one, I'll tell you. Yeah, that. yeah. Zabisco slips free, and they trade blows until Zabisco grabs a sleeper hold, letting Tony name-drop Johnny Weaver. Regal Jawbreaker to escape, and Sir William sneaks in an umbrella shot, but Zabisco manages to counter a Regal Butterfly Suplex into his own suplex while still in the butterfly hold for the three-count and the win. I guess that studying up on butterflies really helped, huh? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Regal is distraught. Heenan encourages him to come back from this, because he didn't lose the gold, at least. But he praises Zabisco as well for such a strong performance. Thoughts on it? So the first part of the match is kind of a double-edged sword, because on one hand, I totally get the story they're going for here. Regal doesn't respect Zabisco. He doesn't really see him as a threat, doesn't doesn't care about him as a challenger. He's accepted the match, but you know, he's not putting the head on the line. It's not really important to him. And he, you know, in his mind he knows he can win. The other side is that they stall for a pretty long time. Mm -hmm. 
now it's better than some other heel stalling we get in like Hollywood Hogan style, for instance, where he walks on the ring and yells at random people in the crowd and then eventually comes back in the ring five minutes later. Because it works for the story that he's like this, but if you're trying to show someone, trying someone into wrestling, you show them this match, they might be thrown off by how long the intro is. That's that's true. That's true. Did you catch, though, I do have to say, did you catch um, Zabisco pointing at one of the cameras and it looked like advising Regal, maybe you should cut a promo into it? Oh, I'd miss that part, now. Yeah, yeah actually, it's just like, oh, there's a camera. <laughs> go, go say something to him, Regal. <laughs> <laughs> Once you get past that part, they do a really good job with the technical style. Obviously, both of them can work really well mm-hmm. in this style. Maybe to your point, um, having so much technical wrestling in the opening match takes a little away from this one because you've seen a lot of it, and now you're the whole point of this match is technical wrestling. So maybe um, arguably too much when you have both matches doing that so close together. Mm-hmm. I think this one does a really good job with that, though. I yes. liked liked all that. Regal pulling out extra mean holes, and as you said, striking whenever Visco seems to get loose is a really nice touch. Mm-hmm. The finish is really good, too. The finish works for me because it's a natural pinning move. It's a, it's a, you know, it's a counter move, like you do a countering at the backslide or something like that. And it feels like it could end the match, but you don't expect them to end the match just abruptly like that on that move. Yeah. So the actual finish, it works well. It's surprising, but not unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You can buy it, but it's also just like, oh my gosh, he got him. <laughs> yes, exactly. I agree with you. It had a slow start, though they did show a lot of character during that. But this turned into a great match. Mm-hmm. Zabisco looked terrific here and kept up very well with Regal. And I, I have to note, Larry's in his early 40s here, mm-hmm. and Regal is in his mid-20s. You could not tell oh, wow. that there was that much of a gap. They had a good storyline going, too, with Regal disrespectful of Zabisco in the early going, but getting humiliated again and again until he loses his temper and switches up to strikes, essentially admitting defeat on the wrestling end of things. Regal becomes brutal, a nice contrast to his lordly arrogance, but he still gets to show off his impressive array of holds. Zabisco came off as a canny ring veteran who absorbed his blows and was always aware of a chance to counter, and he was no slouch in the hold variety himself. The ending spot, I agree, was very, very cool, and it had to take a lot of strength and coordination from both. Larry doesn't really have a, a true full grip on him when he's taking him over, so they got to do it like just perfect timing for it to really work with the way the grip is set up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This was a match that made both of them look really good, and it was a ton of fun to watch. I think my only critique for the match, and it's really not creaking the actual match, is that I feel like they should have done something where Spisco proves he can beat Regal done in a previous show, and this is the title match. True, yeah. Rather than selling as a title match later. Yeah, it would have been nice. I mean, obviously it would have been a different match in that case, but I, I think it would have been nice to have the actual title match, to have an actual title match for Zabisco here. Exactly, that's, yeah, that's, that's my thing. Yeah, yeah. So I mentioned that they were still doing pre-taping at this point, because it does actually factor into this. So this show is May 22nd. However, according to Wikipedia, if you believe the timing of this, Zabisco actually won the TV title in the, I guess, subsequent rematch on May 2nd. (laughs) 20 days before this happened. So that was when they taped it, I guess, and then aired it later. Correct, yes. But yeah, so he he wins on the pre-taping, and he just can't come out with the belt here. That's the... It's oh, kind geez. of funny, yeah. Uh, Zabisco would hold on to the title until June, where he'd drop it at 
Uh, Clash of Champions, 27. It's not in pay-per-view. That's nice. He actually gets a run with the title belt and everything. That's that's cool. Yeah. Yeah, the only downside, like I said, for me with this is that he uses it on the Clash show and Regal wrestles a different match on Clash rather than having the having the big match where he loses the title on Bash of the Beach instead. Yeah. yeah. Other than that, but yeah, it's nice to see him get a title run with this. Yeah. I just wish they had the, the blow-off with on the next show. Okay. Yeah. And I looked, I believe this is the last title he wins in WCW. Okay. Hey, fair enough. I mean, this was a good match, and uh, and I think nicely demonstrated that he uh, still had something he could give in the ring here. So Yeah, absolutely. We go back to Mean Gene, and he advises us that the Cactus Jack poll is still open. He builds up an interview with Hulk Hogan that will air on the upcoming WCW Saturday night, and brings in Terry Funk. Terry Funk, come on in. We saw you in action. Welcome back to World Championship Wrestling. But Terry Funk, for the life of me, at the top of the program, I introduced the legends, and you do a no-show on me. What's happening? Let me say one thing. is Luthez is a legend. I don't doubt that at all, and you shouldn't either. Nick Bockwinkle is a legend. Ray Stevens is a legend. Hey, all of those fellas are legends. But why didn't I step out there? Why didn't I walk the catwalk. I'll tell you why I didn't, because I am the legend. The legend in the most hostile city in the United States, Philadelphia. Do you understand that? There's three things that are of great danger in Philadelphia tonight. One of them is the Schuylkill River with all of that pollution in it. The other one is a sure kill expressway. They knock two or three off every day. And a third way that you can be in great danger is to face a fellow like me. I agree. That's right. Terry Funk is in town. And believe me, I am a hardcore wrestler. And that's what I intend to show each and every one of you out there, that I am a hardcore wrestler. And what this is, this is live. You understand what I'm saying? We are live, just like Saturday Night Live, just like anything I can say and do anything I want to. Do you realize that you can't ever get me off of here? You can't get me off of here because I won't leave. Well, listen and I can talk people about people like that egg-sucking dog, Dusty Rhodes. Now, that old-timer, I'd like to whip on him. But I can't beat him because he's a son of a carpenter. But what I can do is whip on the son of a son of a carpenter. And you haven't seen the last of me tonight, have well, you? I guess we and I don't intend on leaving. Funk, enough no, is no, 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 no. I am not leaving at all. I am going to be here for the rest of the night. You understand what I'm saying? I'll take the microphone away from him, ladies and gentlemen. And I rate Terry Funk. I don't know what the point is. Right now, let's join our broadcast colleague, the Dean of Sportscasters, Gordon Soley. Gordon. A uh, nice promo, I thought. Funk is a genial psychotic this year, I guess. <laughs> yeah. He's all smiles, even as he's delivering threats and promising to cause chaos. <laughs> I liked his explanation for no-showing the Legends bit. He builds up all these men while still keeping him solidly heel by establishing that he sees himself as above all of them, unwilling to be part of the crowd even when the crowd are Legends. Yeah, it definitely works for him as sort of different version of the character, yeah. Yeah. I I don't quite get why he thinks he can't beat Dusty Rhodes just because he's the son of a carpenter. Is is the carpenter Jesus? Is that why? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so in this case, maybe Funk thinks that divinity kind of dilutes enough with the second generation along that you become beatable again. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's weird that of of all the people, he gets the son of the plumber thing wrong. 
Mm-hmm. Yes. Certain people, I could see them actually saying that, but Funk, really? Yeah. Yeah, it's a weird bit, but Funk is at his best when he's at his most insane, and this definitely qualifies. Oh, for sure, yeah. <laughs> we cut to Gordon Soli, who is conducting our Hall of Fame ceremony again this year, as is entirely right and proper. Tonight, they have six inductees. He makes clear that their inductees cross all federations. He notes that Luthez is in the ring to deliver the plaques. Some members of the crowd actually seem to boo, which would just be wrong, but maybe they were chanting Lou? I don't know. Yeah. It, it's a weird reaction at the start. I, I don't really quite get it. As each inductee comes out, Soli goes over their history and we see a classy video package of old photos with nice piano music. We get Harley Race, The Crusher, The Big Cat Ernie Ladd, The Assassin, Ole Anderson, and finally, posthumously, Dick the Bruiser. I have to note, my dad was a big fan of Dick the Bruiser, so I made sure to show him that bit, and he was really happy to see it. Oh, nice. It's also cool that Bruiser and his buddy the Crusher got inducted in the same year. Yes, for sure. Just like last year, Soli did a great job covering the history of the stars and sharing their stories, particularly with Harley Race, where he shares the tale of him having a car crash early on and being told that he'll never wrestle again, only to go on to break Luthez's record for championship reigns. Soli calls him all man in a yard wide. <laughs> I do wish we had Soli on more shows, not just because he's a good announcer, but for the Soliisms. <laughs> for sure, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Some other interesting moments. We get several Thunderbolt Patterson references and fight posters shown in the video packages. Just seeing a lot of a lot of that guy for never having known he existed until you know last show. <laughs> That's true, yeah. We also see a news article about Oli being stabbed earlier in his career. Apparently, a crazed fan did it during his exit after a match, and he underwent a four-hour surgery, but was back on TV in two days and wrestling in a week. Mm. Anderson's man. <laughs> yeah. Interesting fact, too. Ernie Ladd here is mm. apparently the first man to be inducted to both the WCW and the WWF Hall of Fame. Interesting. The WWF inducts him the next year in 1995. Okay. Oh, see, I, I think I remember that because that was on the King of the Ring show you maybe watched from my my own website. <laughs> Trying to remember, remember some positives from that show. <laughs> Wrapping up with Dick the Bruiser's induction, Bruiser's daughter Michelle accepts on his behalf. Soli builds up his work for causes like the Nevada Cancer Society, and he finishes with a really nice quote from Bruiser's grandson Tim. They needed somebody tough up there because things were getting a little out of hand, so they called on Papa. It's very sweet, and Soli seems genuinely broken up during it, mm -hmm. uh, kind of gutting through it. <laughs> Soli shows off the legends to the crowd one more time to great applause. Uh, thoughts on the segment? That it was nice, yeah. It's, it's nice and endearing um, to talk about these guys that work so hard and so long. And really show them respect. It's also nice that they get these these plaques with these interesting drawings of their faces on there. <laughs> Some true. of them seem generally amused by the drawing. Is it just me, or do they look a little bit like the same kind of artwork that's in the that one year where the Starcade has the banners oh. of the people's hmm. faces that are not really great representations of them at times? <laughs> that yeah, I could kind of see that. Yeah, I wonder if it's the same artist. <laughs> it very well could be. But it, but it is nice. I mean. Just like last year, it came off as just classy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Good collection of stories about the legends combined with some really nice photos and occasional video footage of them, and with Gordon Soley's deeply respectful tone. It makes it a segment that's well worth your time if you're interested in the history of wrestling. Oh, yeah. WCW, again, did an exceptional job bringing this all together, and it was a neat look at the past. The crowd had kind of strange reactions starting out, but kind of seems to acclimate to what's going on about midway through Harley Race's induction. It's interesting, like, when he comes out at first, they treat him like modern heel Harley Race. Mm-hmm. But then about halfway through, they start treating him like Hall of Fame inductee Harley Race. That's true, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you see a definite transition where they're like, oh, wait, this is what's going on. Well, that's a thing you see with Hall of Fame stuff, because WWE's Hall of Fame, at this point, because they started in 93 after Andre died, they would do this like black tie ceremony that they would then play later on shows like King of the Ring. Right. And it was like it was all just the wrestlers, you know, being inducted and the modern wrestlers there, like a formal sort of black tie affair. And then later comes a bigger thing where they have actual people in attendance up until twenty twenty, and they couldn't do that. But so it's transitioned from it being a like private ceremony that the boys all go to, to being a big event that they would run the network or on USA later. And that's the thing is because you get a different crowd for sort of formal black tie affair celebrating the life and work of these people versus guys who just saw Terry Funk turn a pile driver guy off into a chair 20 minutes earlier. Yes. So that's why there's that trouble because they're there for action. Then it's just this nice solemn ceremony in the middle of the show. Yeah. Some crowds are great with that and some crowds are not very good with that at all. And I think this one's middle of the road on it. I think they start out like what's going on mm-hmm. and then they, they kind of acclimate to it midway through and are, are able to, to enjoy it or at least or at least respect the people during it yeah the placement for the ceremony is kind of odd though Mm -hmm. like it's three matches in and it's like let's just do the ceremony now pretty close to the beginning but it's not at the beginning yeah either way uh really i I feel like i'm gonna miss these when they're done Mm -hmm. both years so far this has been a really nice part of the show to see and it's gonna be a shame to not have it once it goes away yeah, it's also nice to see that they're not using this to push angles, like would be a more modern thing. Right. Like on a more modern show, like in the not you know, in the nineties and the two thousands, you know, they would have brought on Harley Race, you know, talk about how good he was, and then, you know, have like the Miz or somebody bad mouth him or something, you know. Yeah. They they keep this entirely solemn and respectful exactly. showing, and that's nice. Mm-hmm. We cut to Jesse Ventura, who is with Colonel Robert Parker. Thank you, Gordon Soley, and I'm standing here with the Colonel, a man I admire, not only for his integrity, but he's a man with a plan. You're a thinking man in the world of wrestling. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. Is it a little warm in here? I certainly hope not, Jesse, because I'm going to be turning up the heat here soon. We're going to move right on after you saw my United States champion, Victorious. We're going to go on to the business at hand here. Dustin Rhodes wanted his bull rope match. Well, you're going to have Buckhouse Buck in that bull rope match in a few minutes. We're going to move on to the business of hospitalizing that young puppy. (laughs) All right, but tell me something, Colonel. Now you have the man who's going to step in and meet the nature boy, Ric Flair. Tell us right now. Let me have the scoop. I'm going to give you some hints here. I'm going to tell you he's over six foot seven inches tall. I know Over 300 pounds. I know He holds animosity for Ric Flair. And I'm going to let all the cats out of the bag here very soon, Jesse. Very soon? 
Back up to ringside. Why aren't you telling me now, Colonel? <laughs> I thought this was all right. Uh, Parker does a perfectly fine job here, quickly going over the, over the various angles he's part of tonight and building up each of his men. He's got Austin, Buck, and the Masked Men in, uh, in a very short time. There's not a ton to this beyond that, but Parker and Jesse did interact well around Parker's refusal to tell Jesse the identity of the masked wrestler. I thought Jesse was pretty gold there. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Uh, I know that. I know that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He definitely he definitely wanted the information, and he was not getting it. Yes. He was not happy about it. Yeah, it, it's, it's funny. Like, as soon as he finds out he's not going not gonna to get it, he immediately ends the interview. He's just yeah, like, nope, nope, true. I'm done. <laughs> That's why I called you here. <laughs> yeah, Jesse really stands out quite nicely in this bit, I, I thought. So it was fun. It's weird to have, not have Jesse doing full commentary like he's done in many shows before. Yeah. And to have him as have this sort of rotating commentary team we have throughout. I don't mind it, but it's just weird that he's there and not calling the whole show. But I guess he has so many people sort of competing for space. Yeah, I'm not sure that he would have worked in a three-man team with Heenan. No, I wouldn't. Because they're... they're both heel personalities and they're both big personalities and really would have competed for space i think like you said oh yeah our fourth match is the natural dustin rhodes versus bunkhouse buck in a bull rope match the referee for this one is nick patrick colonel parker at this point is trying to put a collection of wrestlers together he's got austin with him now as you saw he's got bunkhouse buck uh, he wants Dustin Rhodes, but he doesn't go along with that because, you know, Parker's a bad guy and he's a good guy. And, you know, Rhodes work alone, except, you know, when they don't. <laughs> That's kind of their thing. The only thing they don't explain in the promo is that they had a, a previously had a match against each other, a bunkhouse match, which Buck cheated uh, to win. So they're keeping this story going by having Dustin pick the stipulation match this time. Parker being so sure of himself will go along with whatever he wants. Okay. I guess, I mean, if you face a guy named Bunkhouse in a Bunkhouse match, maybe maybe you should be expecting him to probably manage to find some way to win that, right? Yeah, I think he would be a pretty solid favorite in that. Yeah, yeah. Though you are the son of the guy that won every Bunkhouse Stampede match that they aired. Yes, yes. During Dustin's entrance, Heenan takes time out to note that his first ever match was against Dick the Bruiser, and that Bruiser was the toughest man he'd ever been in the ring with. According to ProFightDB, this was on September 7th, 1974. It was Bobby Heenan and The Sheik versus Bobo Brazil and Dick the Bruiser. Hmm. Tony agrees that Bruiser was a tough guy and throws to Capetta. A nice little tribute there, I thought, from Heenan. Yeah, I'm still there. Um, Interesting coincidence on that, by the way. Bobo Brazil, that was mentioned there, a Hmm. real name Houston Harris, entered the WWF Hall of Fame in 1994, inducted by... Ernie Ladd. Oh. And he then inducted Ernie Ladd there in 1995. Which is the one I saw, yeah. So very interesting uh, coincidences there. <laughs> yeah. Rhodes does not have his awesome jacket this year. No. Coming out in street clothes instead, and soaking wet for some reason. <laughs> Buck comes out in western kind of gear, accompanied by Parker. It looks good during his entrance, but once he doffs the coat, it just does not work as a wrestling outfit to me. Yeah. It looks like cowboy pajamas <laughs> it does yeah i think i made the point when we were watching this that his his outfit looks like he's a bad guy in a western movie but he's not the main bad guy right he's one of the guys they you know it's like they send five guys to fight clint eastwood he's one of the five guys 
He's henchman number two that gets shot in half a second at the start of the ending fight. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. The suspenders don't really look right in a wrestling outfit either. It's kind of weird. Yeah, yeah. Rhodes batters Buck with punches before they're even fully hooked up, drags him into the ring with the rope around his neck, and hooks the rope around Buck's wrist himself, then pretty much just continues one-sidedly beating Buck in and around the ring with punches, a stomp to the crotch, a bionic elbow, and cowbell shots, and earns a one-count off a lariat. Heenan asks if Rhodes is a chip off the old block, or just like his dad, a cow chip. (laughs) At least it's not a cow whip, whatever that yes starcade sign went <laughs> whatever luger and sting were yeah. that was so weird yeah i still don't know the answer to that one the crowd chants for terry funk of course buck finally rakes Rhodes's eyes and covers Rhodes' head with Rhodes' own shirt and lays in with the cowbell and actually gets some sympathy cheers <laughs> outside Rhodes gets his head free but buck rams him to the ring post and ties him to it for a few hard strikes Rhodes gets an arm free and slugs him in the balls which Buck cartoonishly sells with head wiggling. Yeah. Rhodes teases a bell-assisted bionic elbow, but oddly just smacks Buck with the bell instead. <laughs> would, would that have been like an old West Van Damnator? Yeah, I guess. <laughs> yeah, it's strange. He like he clearly puts his elbow up to it, like, yes, I'm going to do the bionic elbow to the bell on his head. Mm-hmm. And the crowd cheers for it, but then he just decides, no, I'll just smack him with the bell. So I don't know if he felt like he didn't get a big enough response or or what was going on there, but he just maybe realized that would actually really hurt. So <laughs> Yeah, it's very possible. The crowd chants for blood, which Heenan oddly mistakes for a USA chant. Well, he's, he's, he's American, and it's got American you know, nature in his blood. That's he's a red-blooded American, I get you. Okay. Exactly, yeah. Tony corrects him, and Heenan says, chants for blood are pretty common in Philly, and a waitress chanted it at him this morning. <laughs> Back in, Buck slams Rhodes, but Rhodes stops a top rope move and lands punches in a bionic elbow, then slams him down. Rhodes smashes Buck with the cowbell and pulls him in with the rope, but Nick Patrick gets in the way for no reason and goes down. Yeah, that's true. Suplexed by Rhodes. He spots a Parker sneak attack coming, but Buck grabs Rhodes from behind. Rhodes kicks Parker down and elbows free. Buck just kind of stands there, and Rhodes smacks him with the cowbell for the three count and the win. (laughs) Terry Funk runs down with his branding iron, which is straightened again, so it might be a new one, and hits Rhodes, and Funk and Buck... Don't don't mix those up, good gosh. (laughs) Yeah. And Funk and Buck cooperate to beat up Rhodes, getting him bleeding. Buck tries to set for a spike pile driver, but he can't hold Rhodes up, so Funk just batters Rhodes with his branding iron. WCW officials get the heels out of the ring as Heenan tries to tell us the branding iron was smoking hot, which is somewhat ruined by an official holding it by the brand and on camera moments later. <laughs> Good job, WCW. <laughs> yeah. Uh, thoughts on this one? It was a weird one for me because it, like you're saying, it's very one-sided first off. Yeah. Which, if this is like the blow-off match, maybe that makes a little bit of sense. Obviously, they had fought before. They're fighting that preview we saw and they fought the pay-per-view. I definitely wouldn't have booked him. If I'm booking this match, I wouldn't have booked it that way. No. I would have, you know, Buck attacks him during his entrance to get the advantage or something. And he works him and then he fights back. And then you get to the other part you get in the match. Right. Because, yeah, it gets some sympathy cheer, which is really weird because he's not the good guy in this match. No. He's definitely the bad guy. They they start treating him almost like, you know, he's Barry Horowitz. And he yeah. has just finally gotten a single move of offense in. 
because that's yeah. what it feels like. <laughs> it really does, yeah. It's like three quarters of the match, I think. Feels very one-sided, for sure. The thing is, once Buck's in control, I don't know, he, he didn't do anything bad. He just didn't do anything that really, like, wowed me. Yes. It's kind of middle-of-the-road kind of stuff, punting, kicking. I keep waiting for him to do, like, one like really interesting move. Or some sort of sequence to go, oh, okay, that's what he can do. You know, give me something to work off of. But mm-hmm. it's kind of there, yeah. Yeah, especially since we had still a brawl that we had a, a few problems with earlier, but a much better, like, solid, hard-hitting brawl between uh, Funk and Blanchard. Yes. You know, then to have this one, it, it feels underwhelming. Right. One of the thing with board matches as well, they're always big fights, and you, know, you use the rope and you use the bell. But matches like that are always tricky because you have to find a reason for the competitors not to just wail each other with the bell the whole time. Yeah. Like, why would you punch him if you have a bell you can hit him with? Yes. Why choke him with their hand when you have a rope you can choke him with? Right. Yes. I've never been a huge fan of board matches. They're, I don't think they're not my, my least favorite ones, as long as they're not the touch-all-four-corners ones. Right, yes. That's an exception for those, obviously. Is there- yeah, you have to... I, I feel bad that we always compare these to, to uh, Piper versus Valentine. But, you know, we, we, we have to. Because yeah. that's the example of any kind of, like, strap, bull rope, dog collar match, chain match, whatever you want to call them. That's the gold standard. Yeah, for sure. Of finding creative ways to use the item so it doesn't get boring that you're just constantly using the item. But acknowledging yes you have a weapon so of course you would use it so yeah this one i think uh, falls short on that there's a few points where they come up with some creative spots like mm-hmm. tying ropes to the ring post i like yeah yeah but a lot of it's just punching and i agree with you like why are you just punching when you have a rope and a bell to use and you can kind of do whatever you want with it <laughs> yeah for sure yeah i think board matches can work what they work is when it's Two guys that are wrestling each other or fighting each other that can legitimately go and they have interesting offense and they have strong characters. And this is an accent to the match. Right. Whereas Bunk has bucked, to be quite honest, it's the appeal of him, his matches is is going to be what weapon he gets to use. Otherwise, because he, like he doesn't do a lot for me. Yeah. Action-wise, he didn't have big flashy moves or really that strong character. So he's a guy that relies on the gimmick matches, in this case, to get by. So they aren't are effective because that's all he does, basically. Mm-hmm. So yeah, takes a little away from that. These matches definitely can work. I know there's a really good Sting Vader one that we saw before we started doing the podcast that when we get to will probably feel as good as we remember it being. Yeah. But yeah, this one is kind of disappointing me because it's, it is fairly one-sided. I, I will say, no, you're talking about the bit at the end with Terry Funk and them and Buck where they're doing the pile driver. Yes. I almost, I almost wonder, at least in kayfabe, if maybe the reason that Funk doesn't go along with the move is because he's had no luck with the pile driver all night. <laughs> he's like, you know what? No, no it's going it's to hit him. Out of kayfabe. It's clearly, yeah, Buck just not is not able to keep him up. I don't yeah. know if he's just tired out or just doesn't have a good grip. But he tries twice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> tries twice and Funk is just, Funk, Funk gave up after the first one. He's already jumped down. Yes. From his position and it's just like, no, we are not doing that. I can tell you're going to hurt this guy. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Now, in case of I can't explain the branding iron being back in place, though. Okay. One of the like, old-timey like wrestler strongman things is you would take a steel bar, bend it over your head. <laughs> so, yeah. He took it to the back. And, hey, you guys straight out for me? Oh, sure, sure. There you go. Probably got Haggerty to do it. Haggerty could do it, I think. Yeah, probably. Yeah. 
Yeah, I wouldn't call it outright bad, but I just did not care for this one. Mm-hmm. It's a brawl, but like we said, not a particularly interesting one. Yeah. Like you were saying, Rhodes controls for most of the match, and it feels strange until Buck finally takes control, and you see why, because he appears to not have planned what to do on offense. Yeah. Rhodes does his best to make his part interesting, and he interacts well with the crowd, but Buck just did not seem to really have anything on this one. Yeah. I'm not really ready to totally write him off, but this seemed like an off night for him. Mm-hmm. We now have the alliance of Terry Funk with Colonel Parker and his, uh, what would later be called, the stud stable. Yes. Stud with two Ds for some reason. I guess, branding, I guess. To be copyrightable. Yeah, basically. <laughs> uh, so this will lead to a match where the two of them are teamed against Justin Rhodes and his new tag partner, Arn Anderson. Ooh. Takes place at Bash the Beach. Heenan says he doesn't blame Funk for coming out, as he was called by the smell of the rodeo and the noise of the cowbell. <laughs> okay. It's just hypnotic to him, I guess. I guess so. Tony builds up the upcoming matches as Rhodes is helped out of the ring. Heenan goes to the back, wanting to find out what Funk is up to. Tony throws to Gene, who says that's why Heenan missed out on a job at CNN. I guess implying he would have run out on the desk during a broadcast there. I guess, yeah. Yeah, I didn't quite get it. <laughs> Gene shows the Hotline's Cactus Jack pull, 1-900-909-9900, and brings in Red Bastine and Ray the Crippler Stevens. Stevens says he's having a great time and is bringing back a lot of memories. Gene asks him if he has the urge to get back in the ring, and Stevens laughs and smiles as he says, No, not really. <laughs> Gene turns to Bastine, and Bastine says it's a good thing he got out of the wrestling business after watching the competition tonight. He builds up the strength and endurance of the current wrestlers, praising them heavily. Gene says you'd have to go a long way, though, to match the greatness of Stevens and Bastine. Gene invites them to share a beer later. thought it was quite a nice bit with these guys, and I love Stevens' reaction to being asked if he'd return to wrestling. It's one of those really genuine moments that's so fun, but so rare to see. Oh, for sure, yeah. <laughs> I will say there's one big infusion, especially if you're trying to research for this show. There's wrestler Ray Stevens, and then there's also comedy singer Ray Stevens. <laughs> you would know him from, he wrote the song called The Streak. Uh, it was big in the 70s and 80s, for sure. But I think it's basically true of wrestler Ray Stevens as well, for the most part, yeah. <laughs> Thankfully, the wiki page links to the correct Ray Stevens when you're trying to look him up. Yes. <laughs> And thankfully, WCW got the correct Ray Stevens. Yes. I would not put that past them. (laughs) That's true, yeah. Our fifth match is The Nature Boy, Ric Flair, versus a mystery opponent for Flair's WCW World Heavyweight Championship. The referee for this one is Randy Anderson. And on uh, commentary for this one is going to be Tony and Jesse Ventura, as Heenan has not yet come back to the announce table, so Jesse takes over for him. Parker, as part of his recruitment strategy, was trying to get Ric Flair to be part of his group as well. And obviously, he did not really want to do that. And as such, Parker brings in the mystery opponent, the you know, six foot seven, 300 pound former world champion, who definitely isn't someone who you think it's going to be <laughs> if you're the casual wrestling fan. Yeah, I mean, obviously, what they're building for here that they're trying to get you think it's going to be would be Hogan, right? Yes. Yeah. 100%. Because 
they've been open about the fact that WCW is having a talk with him. This could be how they bring him in. Mm-hmm. You know, is this going to be it? Uh, and it would be, admittedly, a very exciting reveal if that had happened. Right. Now, for that just to work, though, that means me being cynical, you have to believe that they wouldn't properly promote a Hulk Hogan match. Yes. And that's kind of the logical flaw. In that, that is That is true, yeah. I guess you figure maybe they're thinking, okay, if everyone thinks that it's Hogan, that is properly building it up. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I can see that. It's, of course, kind of fitting, because Hogan, about a year from now, would do the same thing, where he promises ultimate surprise. Yes. And tease and tease and tease, and then, nope, Renegade. Flair enters with an awesome golden robe that's even more sparkly than usual. Tony notes the unusual entrance order with Flair, the world champion, coming out first, as Colonel Parker demanded for his man to enter second. Parker enters to what will later be the Four Horsemen theme. Oh yeah, it's true. It's a truly awesome guitar theme that sounds like, I don't know, the final stride of the heroes towards the villain's stronghold in an 80s action movie, maybe? Yeah, that would work. I can <laughs> picture Schwarzenegger doing that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a terrific theme. I, I love that theme. Mm-hmm. Tony and Jesse are confused and wonder if Parker himself might be going to wrestle. Jesse notes he is a pretty big guy, and indeed Parker was once a wrestler, primarily in the 1970s and 1980s. Lots of Flair versus Hogan signs in the crowd, as this is shortly, as we mentioned, before Hogan's going to join up. Parker steals ring announcer Michael Buffer's microphone and introduces his wrestler, Barry Windham. The crowd actually pops pretty big for that one, actually starting as soon as Parker says Wyndham's hometown of Sweetwater, Texas. Mm. Big swell as soon as he says that, so I guess they recognized who comes from there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. For sure. Buffer runs through the ring introduction for Flair, and oddly enough calls referee Randy Anderson, Randy Peterson. Yeah, of all of this, like, now suddenly he gets it wrong. Yes. Tony and Jesse nicely discuss that it's hard to prep for an unknown but Flair won't be as disadvantaged by that as he might have been as he won the title from Wyndham back in 1993. That's true. Wyndham and Flair trade hard punches and chops, respectively, and Anderson reels in sympathy. Wyndham beats Flair down and uses a huge body slam, but Flair dodges an elbow drop, so Wyndham quickly rolls out. Back in, Flair starts kicking the knee, but eats a massive Wyndham clothesline and a second to send him out over the top rope. Wyndham rams him to the barricade, brings him back in with a huge vertical suplex, and takes over with a leg drop, hard punches, and a rope-assisted reverse chin lock. Flair fights back with loud chops, but Wyndham flings him to the turnbuckle, and Flair flips out over it to the floor. Parker sneaks in kicks. Wyndham hits an atomic drop outside and brings Flair back in with another suplex. Flair fights back, but Wyndham gets him up top for a superplex for two and a half. Wyndham is shocked. They trade blows, and Flair knocks Wyndham down and gives a woo! (laughs) Flair's stalling vertical suplex hurts him too, and Jesse notes that with a suplex, you take a big fall too, so that's why he preferred the body slam. I thought that was really nice commentary there. Yeah, that's something you get with someone like Ventura, yeah. Yeah, that's always the thing I'm thrilled by when we get a former wrestler commentator, is they can comment more deeply on the moves because they know, one, what it actually feels like doing them, mm-hmm. and two, what in storyline it's supposed to mean. Yeah, absolutely. You get just that added little bit of depth. Absolutely, yeah. Flair slaps on the figure four. Wyndham stretches and makes the ropes, and he rakes the eyes on a second attempt, 
But Flair gets the figure four on again, so Wyndham shifts aside to get to the ropes again. Flair actually hits a top rope flying punch, and then drops a knee for two as Wyndham makes the ropes. Trading blows again, and Flair crossbodies them both over the top rope. It looked a little bit awkward there. I think it might just be that Wyndham is such a tall guy, mm-hmm. and Flair was not quite high enough on him when he jumped. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Flair flops outside. Flair rams Wyndham to the barricade and throws him in, then punches him down for two. Wyndham tights assisted headbutt, and he throws Flair through the ropes, but Flair spots Parker coming and chops him flat. Parker holds Wyndham's hands to stop a Flair sunset flip, and Wyndham sits down for two, but Anderson breaks up the cheating, and Flair rolls through for one. Flair decks Parker, but gets rolled up for two. Wyndham flings him to the corner, and Flair flips over, sprints along the apron, and hits a top rope crossbody for the three count and the win. Flair rolls right outside to stay away from Wyndham and Parker, and celebrates with the belt at the ramp. Jesse praises Flair's performance, being able to adapt so quickly to the surprise of Wyndham. Thoughts on this one? That was pretty good. Obviously, with Flair matches, you have a pretty high standard, right? Right. There's It's very rare that you get a bad Flair match, or even disappointing Ric Flair match. You basically have to make him wrestle with somebody else, as we, we've discussed. Yes. You know, put him in a mask that crushes his poor nose the whole time. <laughs> poor, poor Flair. Yeah. Yeah, the Black Scorpion match is like the only point where he can't, he just can't be himself. So we can't even have, you know, what's the saying? He could have a five-star match with a broom or something like that. Something like that, yeah, essentially. Yeah, it's, he, he can only do that if he's allowed to be Ric Flair. <laughs> yes, exactly. And likewise, Wyndham's, at this point, especially the more we see him looking back, he has a very strong resume as well. Yes. He never yeah. quite got the same respect as someone like Flair, maybe because he was only world champion briefly in this company, not anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Whereas Flair had this true longevity's career and being a big star everywhere. But yeah, so they and Morgan together is obviously a pretty good pairing. And this match isn't disappointing at all. Right. And they clearly know each other very well. Yes. To be able to just kind of work together on a match very, very easily. Oh, for sure, yeah. I will say Wendell doesn't quite look as conditioned as he did last year. I don't know if, if there's reason for that, maybe because of because he's coming back from his injury or not. But Yeah, I don't know if he's had how many matches he's had before this. I'm sure he was training for it, but I believe this is his first big match back anyway. I believe so. So I don't think it really affects his performance per se, but there's definitely a point. He just doesn't quite look like the Wyndham of old, right. maybe, to be fair. The prior Wyndham, despite being a bigger guy, had a bit of a sleekness to him. Yes. And and this Wyndham, he's a little bit bulkier looking. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's interesting seeing the dynamic here with Flair as the good guy. Yes. And obviously, we get a really, really strong face Flair against a big tougher opponent match with him and Vader, which I know you... Yes. I think everyone liked, but you liked something more than I did. And it's nice seeing him actually win with that move that he's he's only won like one other time we've seen so far with. Starcade 83. Exactly, yeah. Drink. <laughs> yeah. We're going to keep coming back to that show somehow for all this time. Yes. He has to throw in an occasional time that it actually works, I guess, mm-hmm. so that it justifies him continually trying that move for the rest of his career and constantly being thrown off the top rope. Yeah. <laughs> it's like someone has to occasionally powerbomb Billy Kidman or else, you know. Yeah. It's just not a surprise. Well, with that one, I, I guess you could say, like, the challenge is there. Mm-hmm. 
if you can't powerbomb Kidman, then then people would try anyway, just to try to prove that they can be the one to do it. Right. And they're just all wrong. <laughs> That's very true, yeah. Yeah, I thought this was a really, really nice match. Flair and Wyndham obviously know each other quite well, and they put on an exciting, if surprisingly strike-heavy performance. They really knocked the hell out of each other on some of their strikes, and Flair hit some of the loudest chops I have ever heard. Mm-hmm. Parker's interference spots were well-timed, and I love that Flair, himself the dirtiest player in the game, as he reminded us, was aware enough to catch him on one of them, and just knock him flat as he charged in. Both wrestlers had some impressive suplexes in this one, and the figure four segment was neat, with Flair being really aggressive about trying to keep Wyndham in it, which makes sense given Wyndham's uh, injury was a knee injury. So they kind of worked that very nicely into the storyline with Flair aggressively working the knee early on and then trying really hard to get the figure four. Oh yeah, absolutely. Flair's crossbodies were a tad sloppy, like I mentioned. It, it mm-hmm. might just be that Wyndham's very tall. Right. But the ending still worked great, with some close calls on the way to a rare Ric Flair top rope move victory. It's rare for you to get to see him do the entire uh, flip over the turnbuckle, run along the entire apron, and leap up onto the top rope, all like without a break. And uh, he did a good job with it this time. So I really enjoyed this one. Absolutely, yeah. Wasn't disappointing at all. Especially given the dubious history of mystery opponents. Yes. Just, in wrestling in general, not in just WCW. Yeah, I think this is not as big a match as it would have been had they ended up doing Hogan that way. Yeah. But it is it is a good match. And I think the crowd was down for it the moment they saw Wyndham. It seemed like they were, they were like, okay, that's not who we were expecting it to be, but we're, we're cool with that. Yeah. <laughs> so as we sort of touched upon... Uh, previous year, Ric Flair and Barry Windham had a match where they were competing for the title, but the roles were reversed. Mm-hmm. Windham was the champion, and Flair would beat him at that show. And unfortunately, in that match, Windham would injure his knee, and he'd be out for quite a while. Yeah. Now, Nicky had recovered for a bit before this match, but this is, like I said, it's his first real big match coming back, so it's a surprise that he's here. Unfortunately, he injured his knee again in this match. Oh. I know. I feel so bad for him. Oh, man. Because, like, he has a big comeback match. Nope. I, I I have no idea when it would have happened, because I didn't notice it. Yeah, I, I knew that I was looking for it, like, see if I can spot anything. But, yeah, I can't. I couldn't see anything. Well, good on him for being able to cover it so well, but uh, that's a shame. Yeah. Uh, that would lead to his hiatus from wrestling until 1996. Wow. Uh, where he would join the WWF and become the stalker. Uh, that's that's too bad. Now, we will see him again. I don't know if we'll see him in this series, but we will see him again in WCW. He comes back later with his brother. Right, right. As part of the classic angle, which involves their opinion on rap, and whether <laughs> yes. it's good or not. <laughs> Where, to, to his credit, he at least seems to be having a lot of fun with that one. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, that that's a shame. And I think maybe this, you know, like you were saying earlier, why isn't Barry Windham regarded with the same caliber as as some of the other greats from the era? Mm-hmm. And I think maybe that's part of it is he has this this period while he still could be active, but he goes out with a injury for like a year, comes back, gets injured again, and is out for like another two years. Other than help, yeah. And just, so there's this long period where he just becomes absent from the consciousness of the wrestling public for a long time. Yeah. During an era era when he could still be uh, a really good competitor. Yeah. And when he comes when he comes back to WCW, he's he definitely used a lot, but he's not he'd never 
brought back to the level, whereas yeah. people like Flair never really leave this level once they reach it. Yeah, it's it, that's a real shame. I'm I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah. And that was the as far as the title under Flair goes, you have the challenger that the crowd was expecting at the next show, Bash at the Beach. Speaking of Bash at the Beach, Tony promotes it a little bit and we get a promo video that is absolute gold. Mm-hmm. Here's a look at Bash of the Beach. It's a dirty job, but someone's got to do it. Hey, break! Is that the big one? Chill! Wait for the big one. The big one? Beyond awesome. The perfect wave. The big one's here. It's WCW's Bash at the Beach. Sunday, July 17th, 7 p.m. Eastern. Live and only on pay-per-view. Cool. Call your local cable operator for availability. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. This awesome video features Mean Gene Okerlund and Bobby Heenan dressed in beach outfits and partying with surfer dudes and ladies and making surfing puns. Apparently, Bash at the Beach is the big one. The big one? Gene sprays the camera with a super soaker to close us out. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely wonderful. (laughs) There's a weird bit of sort of sarcasm to um, Heenan's delivery at the the last line he has, too. Yes. It almost feels like they did these over like a whole afternoon recording you know, this promo, and they didn't you know they didn't use the first take; they used like the twenty seventh take. Yes, he's like the big one. <laughs> he still delivers it like Heenan, but he's definitely somewhat annoyed and just less interested. Yeah. Heenan, I wouldn't be surprised if this was a very very long day, but it it comes out great. Oh, for sure. Yeah. In that it comes out horrible, but turns around and becomes great. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Back to the arena, and Gene hopes the ladies from that video will be at their Bash of the Beach show. Gene shills the hotline and the Cactus Jack pole yet again, 1-900-909-9900. He brings in Don Curtis and The Crusher, the latter of which is still holding his Hall of Fame plaque. Curtis reminisces on his time tag-teaming with Mark Lewin, another Starcade 83 reference, hmm. and says it was a lot of fun. Uh, Lewin, if you remember, was Kevin Sullivan's tag-team partner on Starcade oh, yes. 83. You know the name? I'm like, I know that name, yeah. Gene says they drove the ladies crazy, and Curtis says uh, that was Mark, as Gene notes that Curtis's wife is in the back. (laughs) Good job escaping trouble, Curtis. (laughs) Gene turns to Crusher and talks up their shared history. Crusher says he's very proud of his induction, and he's really happy that Dick the Bruiser was inducted at the same time. He says Dick the Bruiser is continuing to murder them bums up in heaven. That that sounds like maybe something that you shouldn't do in heaven. I'm I'm just thinking... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, I mean, where are they going to go? <laughs> I guess. Gene asks if he can twist Crusher's arm to join them for a drink, and Crusher says he'll only have to twist his little finger. They joke about doing polkas, and Gene throws to former Philadelphia Flyers hockey player Dave the Hammer Schultz. Dave the Hammer Schultz here. You know, the former Philadelphia Flyer. I'm going to be the special referee for the wildest match in Slamboree history when that insane Cactus Jack and Kevin Sullivan take on the Nasty Boys for the World Tag Team title in a Broad Street Bully match. I can guarantee you one thing. They didn't nickname me the Enforcer for nothing. If these guys think they're going to pull something past me, then they're really crazy. This match is going to be by the rules, and I guarantee it. So watch out, you pinheads, because the Hammer will be watching you. Uh, Schultz's promo was pre-recorded, apparently, without an interviewer. Kind of odd. Huh. 
We got a shot of him fighting in a hockey game during the promo. I thought this was actually a rather good wrestling-style promo from a non-wrestler. Yeah. Normally, sports stars or celebrities can be pretty darn wooden when they have to do more of an aggressive promo, but Schultz did a good job and was quite forceful. I don't buy for a second he's going to be able to keep any kind of order, and I question rules he's supposedly going to be enforcing in a Broad Street Bully match, which, to my understanding, is a no-DQ match. But still, a pretty good promo from him, I thought. Well, there's a, there's a lot of nuance to Broad Street Bully matches, Bob. Is there? You just gotta understand how they work, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he, he seemed actually interested in what he was doing and not just taking the easy payday and just saying the line without mustering any emotion whatsoever, yeah. Yeah, with celebrities on there, you either get, they don't have to be part of an angle so they can just be themselves and they sometimes come off really charming and sometimes come off just like, uh, you know, not really doing anything. Yeah. Or you get them being forced to be part of an actual angle, in which case it almost never goes well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, but with this guy, honestly, like his promo, he, he seemed into it. He seemed like, no, this is fun. I'm going to do this. Yeah. I guess you could argue there's not as much of a transition between being like a bigger, someone's a bigger character from hockey yeah. than, say, being like a random baseball umpire or something like that. That's true. That's true. That's why some football players tend to acclimate pretty well to the whole situation yeah i mean you've got a whole slew of them that actually just straight up become wrestlers yeah that's true yeah our sixth match is cactus jack and kevin sullivan versus the nasty boys jerry sags and brian knobs in a broad street bully match for the nasty boys wcw world tag team championship special guest referee for this one is david the hammer schultz wait i thought he was the enforcer uh Everyone else calls him the Hammer. He, for some reason, calls himself the Enforcer, which I I think actually the Hammer is his actual nickname, but the Enforcer is what, like, the hardest-hitting member of a team is named. Right, right, yeah. No, so I think he's called the Enforcer for his team, but the Hammer is his specific name. Yeah, Enforcer, my, my limited saying of hockey is the Enforcer is like an actual position on the team, yeah. But people wouldn't be calling you the Enforcer, they would just, you are the Enforcer. Yeah. Whereas people call you the hammer because that's not like your job being the hammer. That's a little confusing. Yeah, a little bit. And of course, there's only one enforcer. Right. (laughs) Uh, So, Kevin Kevin Sullivan, retired druid, has (laughs) has brought in his his kayfabe brother, Dave, to challenge Nasty Boy for the tag team titles. Unfortunately, the latter was injured in a dark match they had before the Spring Stampede show, the previous pay-per-view. Unfortunately? Well, I mean, okay, this way. I feel bad for the guy when he injured his knee. Okay, fair, fair yeah. enough. Fair enough. So, un- unfortunately for him, he was injured. <laughs> Fortunately for us, he was replaced by Cactus Jack. Is that better? Yes. Okay. And then this is the point, thankfully, where he's, I believe, still going by Dave Sullivan, not going by Evad Sullivan. Yes. So I think he, he, I think he does that uh, when Hogan comes in. Yes, which admittedly is not that that long from now. Schultz is out first in the Philadelphia Flyers outfit and brings out a hockey stick as Michael Buffer goes over the Flyers' history. Tony requests the hockey stick be moved away from the commentary table, please. <laughs> Oddly, Jack and Sullivan come out to the same rock music as Schultz. Well, they're, they're, showing, they're showing solidarity, Bob. They shouldn't be. He's the referee. <laughs> What's well, Kevin Sullivan? I mean, that's just what he does. Sullivan is wearing a Phillies baseball jersey. The Nasty Boys are billed as from somewhere nasty in the scariest section of New York City. Shame they can't remember exactly where. 
Yeah. How, how do they like send? How do you send letters to them? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I, I, I yeah. Dip it in something nasty, I guess. <laughs> I'd say it would affect them getting fan mail, but it is the nasty boys. So that <laughs> maybe never been a problem. <laughs> uh, maybe maybe this is actually the secret. They've been doing. You know, Cactus Jack had his amnesia angle. Mm-hmm. They've been doing a years long amnesia angle. This, oh. this entire time. That's very possible. Longest running story in wrestling. <laughs> the teams end up outside almost immediately. It's Sullivan versus Knobs and Jack versus Sags to start, and they brawl and hit each other with objects. Poor Jack gets hit with chairs or flung over barricades while we're only shown Sullivan and Knobs, but the camera does finally switch over to him in time to catch him bashing Sags with a chair. Sullivan hits a surprisingly nice dropkick on Knobs in the ring. Yeah. Tony notes that the match is anything goes, so I'm again confused what rules Schultz is supposed to be enforcing. All of them, obviously. <laughs> the, the single rule. <laughs> yes. Count three, win. Correct, yeah. The brawl moves along the ramp. Sags nails Jack with a fire extinguisher, but Sullivan pile drives Knobs on the ramp. Jack whacks the nasty boys with a garbage can. Awkwardly, he misses Knobs' head and hits his foot instead. <laughs> oh well, it works. <laughs> Close enough. They trade dance partners and keep brawling. Jack puts Knobs on the garbage can, but Knobs dodges a diving elbow, and Jack eats can. The nasties batter Jack with the flattened trash can, someone's camera, and a chair, but Sullivan comes to the rescue. Sags hits both with the can, and they all kind of fall on top of each other during the melee. <laughs> Jack is bleeding. Sags retrieves a table, while Jack and Sullivan beat up Knobs. Sags flings Jack through the table then jams the light stand into him. Sullivan brawls with Knobs with someone's drink, while Jack suplexes the table onto Sags, and Sags rips a hunk of the table off to smash it into Jack. Sags beats up Jack with a trash can lid, and Tony says he looks like Captain America. Tony, if you ever want to be MVP again, stop that right now. Yes, 100%. Schultz just kind of wanders after the chaos as someone sprays somebody with a fire extinguisher. They brawl with the lid, and Jack is thrown into the ring by Sags for a top rope elbow drop. Schultz starts the count, but Sags pulls up and shoves him away, going for the hockey stick. Schultz gets in his face, tosses the stick, and lands wild punches. Jack nails Sags with the hockey stick, and Schultz counts three to give Sullivan and Jack the win and the titles. Not exactly impartial, Schultz. Well, they don't call him the impartial one. (laughs) That's true, that's true. They call him several things, but not that. Jesse, in fact, notes there may be a review of that decision. There is not. Okay. (laughs) Sags knocks Jack back down and elbow drops him, then hits him with the hockey stick, but Max Payne arrives with a guitar and smashes it over Sags' head for the save. I was hoping he would save Jack with a rocking guitar solo instead. Yeah, that would been good. Jack, Sullivan, and Payne chase Knobs up the ramp, where Dave Sullivan comes out on crutches, one of which he breaks on Knobs' face. Easily the best thing Dave Sullivan ever did. Yes, yes, absolutely. Schultz holds up the team's arms in victory and delivers the belts. The replay shows Sag spat on Schultz before Schultz attacked him. Thoughts on this one? Uh, it was a chaotic one. Like, all these nasty boys, let's all fight everywhere, uh, split up and make the match hard to follow. Matches tend to be... Mm-hmm. They tend to have more, a little more fun with this one, though. It was definitely... Somewhat easier to follow the important stuff, at least. Yes. I feel for Jack that him being hit with objects really hard is not deemed important by the camera crew, but, you know, 
they seem to they seem to adapt like about a quarter through the match. They seem to start realizing, oh, wait, we need to just kind of switch back and forth more often for this yes. one. Yeah, there's earlier and later matches with them and various partners, whether it's Harlem Heat or um, other teams like Public Enemy, where they don't seem to do a good job of that. And they miss stuff like people being pinned or people being like thrown off the stage. You're like, yeah, guys, hello. It's literally the entire point of these matches. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I will say this is definitely the best use we've had of the Nasty Boys, I think, so far. 100% agreement, yes. Yes. <laughs> Largely because the other uses have been utter crap. Well, yes. Mine's a nicer way of putting it, but yes. <laughs> but yeah, they, they, cause they are definitely not being used in a match where they don't know how to do offense, and it's a straight match, and it's like 35 minutes long. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> obviously the worst experience we've had with them, I think, so far. Oh. <sighs> Yeah. Yeah. Because it ruins so many people we like at the same time, which is the yes. shame. And they had other matches like leading up to this. There's Jack and Payne together against them that, again, are a little harder to follow. Seems like eventually they, for the most part, get this formula down. That being the protection people get this, this formula down so they know how to follow yeah. stuff like that. I will say this match is historically important as well. This is the only title win for Mick Foley and W. Wow, really? Yep, that's it. That's all you only got. Wow, that yeah. actually is legitimately shocking. I figured he must have one I missed, but look, no, he only got yeah, one. Yeah, I would have expected at least like a TV title run or something like that. I know they were doing a hardcore title at this point, but man, that's that's actually shocking. Yeah, I was very surprised to hear that too. Uh, yeah, I thought this was honestly quite a fun brawl. Um, and like you said, easily the best Nasty Boys match we've watched for the show. Yes. This is clearly more their domain. They do much better as crazy brawlers than as standard tag wrestlers. Mm-hmm. This still isn't particularly deep, and there's not much of a flow to it. People just hit each other hard with various objects until it all comes to an end. But the teams did do a good job in the late match of freeing themselves from their opponents to go help with their partner when they got in trouble, so there's that. Mm-hmm. There was a sense of at least of a match strategy or of them working together. Schultz's match involvement was pretty disappointing, I thought. I really thought he'd get a little bit more involved. His flurry of punches was fun, admittedly. It's just a little weird after them focusing so much on him with that promo that they don't have him do anything else. Hmm. It's also weird that Schultz doesn't do anything to try to stop the assault on Jack after the match, leaving that entirely to pain. I guess he only really cared about the fact that Sags disrespected him. Hmm. He wasn't yeah. defending Jack, he was defending his own honor or something like that. Hardcore wrestling isn't really my thing, but this did work. Um, like I said, it is weird that the ref, for being the sole thing they really built up on the show, other than, than the constant phone pole where the Jacks to be allowed to even wrestle, yes, that he does so little, yeah. Makes you wonder if they had more plan and, you know, one reason another they couldn't do it. They probably had like eight or nine different spots planned where he'd enforce the rules in some way and then realized, wait, wait, we planned this as a no disqualification match, we can't do that. I mean, we still will get hardcore matches or these street fights for refs randomly get in the way and stop weapon attacks yeah. or, you know, tell them to get back in the ring when there's no enforcement of it. So it does happen. Otherwise, I did say yeah, it's a pretty fun bit of chaos there. Yeah. yeah. The new champs, Cactus Jack and Kevin Sullivan, would defend their titles against Pretty Wonderful, but as you know, it worked a dark match on this show. It's a big step up from dark match to tag title match. Yeah, yeah. I guess it'd be a bigger step up from not on the show at all to a tag title match, though, in all fairness. Um, yeah, it's a 
pretty marginal difference, but yeah, I, I agree. <laughs> um, is there anything, did you find anything about whether Sags was actually injured or not, or just, because he lies there for quite a while after the match, so I was curious. Yeah, I didn't see anything on that. Um, I don't know how much that's selling, or it could have been like an errant bit of guitar debris injury. Yeah, I didn't see anything about it, like an actual injury. Okay. Jesse declares that one of the wildest matches that he's seen. We get footage of the WCW trainer checking on Sags, who's still out in the ring. Jesse decries the five-on-two tactics and asks Tony what he says to that. I'd say too bad, Tony says. (laughs) (laughs) Jesse calls him hard and callous, and Tony says he's in Philly and he took insensitivity training. (laughs) (laughs) Tony shills the Slampery Collector's Pack and says you can remind yourself of the great trash can match. (laughs) Tony recaps Sting's refusal of the belt at the beginning of the show, and the two build up the Sting versus Vader match as we get more shots of Nobbs joining the trainer to check on Sags. They call for a stretcher, but Sags is able to sit up. Tony throws to Gene. Gene shills the hotline and Cactus Jack pole again in light of this match. The crowd gives him a resounding no <laughs> to uh, the idea of excluding Jack from WCW. <laughs> one 909 Gene brings in Luthez and Vern Gagne. This was not the time to talk to these two, to put it lightly. No. Gagne says he hopes Bockwinkle does something about that, and that it had nothing to do with wrestling. He notes Sags being taken out, and possibly needing to visit the hospital. Gene turns to Thez, and asks about the Hall of Fame ceremony the year prior. Thez says... He was glad to be the first inductee and glad to see Vern get in as well, but then turns to the match they just saw. He says that instead of a point system, they use sharp objects, and he guesses that's how things are today. (laughs) Gene praises Thez and Ganya as two of the greatest and a credit to the sport. The two were really polite about it, but you could definitely tell that Thez and Ganya were not pleased with the hardcore wrestling style. Yes. And Ganya in particular showed his disapproval and was not going to let that by. <laughs> no, no, for sure. And as much as that particular match was a fun watch, I do generally agree with him. Yeah, sure. It's not really what you should think of as wrestling so much generally. Mm-hmm. I think uh, I think a lot of people end up using it as kind of a shortcut yes i'm not saying for this match in particular necessarily but it kind of ends up a shortcut for a lot of wrestlers that don't do as well with the basics yeah you if you don't necessarily have to learn how to do all these moves and stuff if you can just walk around and something hit people with you know trash cans and cookie lids or whatever you know like the piggy pan and stuff like that yeah yeah now, i definitely could see a guy as as heavy on the technical side of wrestling and the the like scientific side of wrestling as ganya was where he didn't even want Hulk Hogan as his as his AWA champion, you know he's not going to like hardcore wrestling. <laughs> oh, for sure, yeah. So, Absolutely. Yeah, WCW should probably have brought Ganya and Thez out earlier and picked, I don't know, maybe the Crusher or somebody for after the hardcore match. Yeah. I feel like he'd maybe be more open to that style. Yeah. No, it's nice to see them, but yeah, it's definitely a weird combination of things yeah. there, yeah. They were really polite, I do have to say. They were very polite, but yeah, yeah, you could just feel their feel their disapproval. It was the stern fatherly glare. <laughs> yeah, it might have worked better with the uh, the guys at the promo they asked him earlier if he was you know thought about wrestling again. Yeah, go after this, like that. No, <laughs> yeah, like that, no. You know. yeah. That would have worked. Our final match is Sting versus Vader. 
with Hall of Fame inductee Harley Race for the vacant WCW International World Heavyweight Championship. <laughs> We're in that era again. Yes. The referee for this one is Randy Peterson. I mean, Randy Anderson. Randy somebody. And uh, Heenan is back on commentary for this one and reports that Terry Funk attacked Red Bastine backstage. <laughs> yes. The WWE International Heavyweight Championship has a admittedly very short lineage going just actually less than a year. I'm looking at it here. It's not a lot to talk about, but the key thing is that out of the eight champions they had, Rude and Sting were a huge part of that. Mm-hmm. Rude makes it practically half of the, the champions right there. Yes. So they obviously had a long ring feud. Starting at like Fall Brawl, Rick Rude wins the championship and you know, it goes throughout 94 with the champion up until this point where unfortunately gets injured in that match, as we noted. Right. The injury that they don't actually admit for some reason. This is weird because, okay, so saying the match is always reversed is fine to explain why Sting is theoretically champion. Obviously, he turns it down. But it doesn't explain where Root is. True. You could just say he's injured. I don't know why you can't say he's injured. Yeah, yeah. They they really could have just, they could have shortcutted the whole thing by saying, Root is injured, therefore, Sting, you're going to face Vader for the title. Or, you know, if they don't want to say he's injured for whatever reason, they could have said that he stripped of the title and was going back to Sting, and because of his conduct, he's been suspended for right. X amount of days. And then, then later, oh, by the way, he's actually injured. Otherwise, yeah, why is he not here? At the very least, why isn't he here complaining about the results? Yes. Saying he was stabbed in the back by a neurosurgeon like that other time. Oh, oh yeah, I remember that. <laughs> I remember that now. Not quite getting how surgery works. Yeah. Yes. Vader is out first as Tony and Heenan discuss Schultz's involvement in the finish of the last match. Heenan, to no one's surprise, disapproves. Sting comes out sans jacket, but with orange and blue face paint. Heenan questions how Sting could have turned down the belt. Buffer introduces Anderson as Peterson again. <laughs> Seriously, nobody replaces note cards after the first time? <laughs> yeah. Buffer gives his let's get ready to rumble call and introduces Vader and Sting. Vader calls out his own name as Buffer does, which cracked me up. <laughs> like matches the cadence and everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's true, he does, isn't he? Harley Race gets in Sting's face as Tony and Heenan note how big a night this would be for Race if Vader wins here on the same night that Race got in the Hall of Fame. Vader gets Sting to the ropes, but breaks clean and bows. Sting dodges around his punches as the crowd chants something that was either Sting loves something unintelligible or Sting must die. Mm. If it's the latter, Philly fans have no heart or soul. Yes. Sting lands a kick, but Vader catches another and beats the hell out of him all around the ring with forearm strikes and a massive clothesline. Sting dodges a second and lands his own hard strikes, actually beating Vader to his knees against the ropes and kicking him outside. Vader rips off his mask and swears. Back in, Sting gets a suplex, but hurts his back in the process. Sting bounces off Vader on a charge and eats a double forearm. Vader asks him how that feels and slaps him, then stands on his head. <laughs> Second rope splashes for two. Vader yells at Sting and knocks him around, then slaps on a leg submission as Sting howls in pain. Race yells for Vader to break it. <laughs> Vader transitions to a back submission, and Heenan says he should do that to Gene Okerlund, 
<laughs> Vader bends Sting like a pretzel, earning a few one-counts. Sting finally kicks free and manages to trade blows, dropping Vader with a combination of punches. Vader doesn't quite roll out of the way of an elbow drop and takes it in the ribs, but Sting is down, and the commentators say that might have been all he had. Vader gets two off a couple elbow drops. Vader slaps Sting around, but Sting pokes his eyes and stuns him with punches. Flying clothesline by Sting, but Vader ducks, and Sting nails Anderson by mistake. Massive Vader chokeslam, but there's no ref. Vader holds Sting for a race chair shot, but Sting ducks and race nails Vader. Sting DDTs Vader as Anderson wakes. For two. Sting knocks Vader over the ropes with a clothesline, suplexes him with impressive ease, and clotheslines him out again, but Vader catches a stinger splash and power slams him for one, as Vader gets up and climbs up top. Vader salt, but Sting rolls out of the way, and Vader eats Matt for two. Sting breaks as Race dives off top, and Race headbutts Vader by mistake. Anderson throws Race out, and Sting hits a top rope splash to Vader for the three count and the win. Sting has officially won the belt, and Anderson hands it over. Sting celebrates on the turnbuckle, and we get replays of the moonsault, Race's headbutt, and Sting's splash. Heenan is aghast at this end to what could have been Harley's best night ever. Thoughts on this one? That was a really good match. Obviously, those two work really well together, as we've covered even just in the few times we've got them on, together on the show. They had that surprise match of the night at Starcade 92, I believe it is. 92 yeah. is King of Cable. Yes. Yeah, that, oh man, that was tremendous. Given those two, I was expecting a lot and thankfully delivered. Mm-hmm. What I liked is that um, Vader actually tried new stuff in this match. Mm-hmm. As, they, as they mentioned, Vader working his mission hold is a kind of terrifying sight because he can punch you and slam you and knock you down and land on you, but now he's also bending you as well. Yes. It's not enough that he just throws you down. He can also throw you down and then twist you, as I said, twist you into pretzel, force you to do yoga positions, essentially, if he really wants you to. Yeah, and I like that he he didn't do just regular submission holds either. He had some some different ones. Yeah, yeah. He did unusual unusual holds. That knee one was nice because he like he puts like his whole body on top of him oh and stretches his leg around. Yeah, looks so painful. <laughs> yeah, Vader, as I've mentioned, anytime I've praised him, is he's always good at using his size. Mm-hmm. In both ways you expect, like being able to do his infamous falling fridge attack. Yes. Which works really well with his mass. Using it here to amplify his mission holds, and also using it to surprise people. First time you tell people that this guy can do a moonsault, then you see him, whether he hits it or even just missing it, it's still a thing of beauty. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not a fall. It's an actual jump with a graceful curve to it and everything, and you're just like, yeah. How do you do that? You're so huge. <laughs> yeah. I really wonder I don't they were in, interact with if there's a match in Japan where somehow you get Vader and Muda together, I'm curious to see how that would oh, go. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah. Just see them both to the moonsault in the same match. Mm-hmm. Just for the contrast would be amazing. The other thing I liked is that I think they they knew Sting has to be the winner because they have planned for him. But they, what they did was they made sure that Vader didn't look like he lost badly here right because for one thing he has harley race he's usually a great manager but is very inept tonight <laughs> with the with the headbutt and the chair shot and all these things that go awry he's distracted you know he just got hall of fame his head's in the clouds yeah 
Hell, even the ref batters him around a bit. <laughs> the ref shoves him out of the ring. <laughs> like, get out of here. <laughs> but yeah, I like that he hits his choke slam, which something they don't mention it because his choke slam is the one that actually injured that one yes. jobber they mentioned that on the previous show. And I get maybe don't don't mention that all the time, but you can mention it once or twice. Like mention, hey, that move just took legit took out a wrestler and he hit Sting with it. And then, oh no, but there was no ref here. Yeah, right. The yeah. same thing I mentioned that to some degree. Even just mentioning a choke slam is dangerous, and leave it at that. It, it is a terrifying choke slam. Yes, you know there, there's a lot of them that that land you nicely, like flat on your back, which I think is probably how it's supposed to be done. Mm-hmm. But Vader like just picks you up and just chucks you at the crowd, and however right. you land, you land. <laughs> yeah, Vader's choke slam is. Uh, a combination, essentially, of a body slam and a choke slam. Yes, because the choke slam in general is is a it's a choke in the pick up part, but then you fall down, and they for the most part they let you fall. Some of them they do a good job of falling with you, so it looks like they're slamming you, but they're actually not really doing that. Mm-hmm. Big Show, like early Big Show, especially his choke slam, he would go down with them, but he clearly wasn't using his full strength to hit them. Otherwise, he would smash them to the ground. So. Right? Yeah, I mean they'd be dead. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Vader's is a is a legit choke slam. Yes. For better or worse, yeah. I like that they don't make Vader look bad here, and it's good that they protect him, because obviously they have future planned with them. Whether they actually fall through with them is another story. Yeah, a tremendous, hard-hitting world title match here, with Sting fighting as hard as he could to just stay alive. Sting certainly earns his win with pure fighting spirit, but like you said, Sting doesn't really beat Vader. Vader and Race beat Vader. Yeah. Through their attempts to cheat. At multiple points, it really looks like Vader could have won if not for Race interfering or Vader deciding to inflict more punishment. It's their own arrogance and willingness to take shortcuts that actually hurt him here. Yeah. In fact, after the slam he does to Sting when he cuts them off the Stinger Splash, he's pinning him when Race tells him to go up and hit the moonsault. Yep, yeah, Race actually is saying, go up there, go up there, yeah. So he breaks his own pin to do that, Mm. yeah. Yeah, and I thought, I agree with you, I think it's a terrific ending. Taking Vader down takes him missing a move, Race accidentally hitting him, and a huge top rope splash from Sting. Mm -hmm. So it feels very fitting for such a tough character to need a lot of hard hits to take down, rather than just one finisher. Yes, exactly. This was an intense and extremely hard-hitting match with some impressive power from Sting, Nasty strikes and interesting holds by Vader, and one heck of a lot of emotion from both. It feels like the legendary feud it is. Yes, absolutely. It was very, very fun to watch. Mm-hmm. At the Clash of Champions 27, which I mentioned way back in match three, we have a match to officially unify slash get rid of the WWE International World title <laughs> and combine it with the World Championship, because we don't need two of these things anymore. Yeah. <laughs> So it comes down to a match between current world champion, which is still Flair, and current international heavyweight champion, which is Sting. Which you can probably imagine leaves Flair as the sole champion going into Bash of the Beach, where he has the aforementioned challenge of Hogan. Yes. I guess Hogan didn't want to carry two belts. Yeah, yeah, probably. <laughs> so don't blame him. Or, or someone backstage just finally realized the entire WCW international thing was a really bad idea. <laughs> yeah. We should, we should mercy kill it. What is interesting to me about it, and and I think they made the right choice here, but what's interesting to me is that they unify the WCW international title into the WCW title, Mm -hmm. 
but they keep the belt that was being used for WCW International because they keep the big gold belt. Yes. Which was being used for WCW International title. So they, they make the right decision, I think, in both cases, because the big gold belt is infinitely superior to basically any other belt on the planet. Yes. I, d- I do love the original NWA belt, which has been, to a certain degree, re- reused currently um, in the mm-hmm. what the hell the NWA is at this point. But yeah, the big gold belt is, is possible to replace for me. Yeah, don't don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. There are other title belts that are good title belts. Mm-hmm. I liked like the uh, the WWF Winged Eagle one. Yeah, but the big gold belt just outclasses everything to me. Hundred percent. Yeah, keeping it was definitely the right choice. Yeah, no, for sure. Even though they're keeping the other actual championship. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So following that match, which unfortunately leaves neither Sting nor Vader with the world title, Vader would have a feud with the rebranded Guardian Angel. Oh god! After being what uh, was the boss when he first came in? Yeah, I think he just goes by the boss, and then he starts going by Guardian Angel. I don't think yes. there's another one, right? Not between them, no. Oh. And then the Guardian Angel thing is also dropped when he, I think, when he turns heel. Yes, because they don't like that. We don't want to be associated with that, guys. <laughs> exactly. And unfortunately, going way back to the first match, the original match they're supposed to get at Bash the Beach was. Now, mind you, I'm not sure if this is a kayfabe explanation or actual good explanation. But the storyline is that the U.S. title match was supposed to be Steve Austin and Sting. Ah, okay. At Bash the Beach. But Sting is kayfabe injured in the match against Flair when sent to a Sherry, who pretended to be on his side, turned on him. They, they set up the story that Sherry has picked him. She comes out uh, wearing his face paint even, apparently, which <laughs> is kind of, I kind of want to see that now. I, I do want to see that, yeah. Yeah. But in the key point of the match, she turns on him. Thus turning heel and also turning Flair heel, because obviously Flair's not going to be faced anymore with you-know-who coming in. Yes. So, that ought to go out the window now. Now, what I don't know is if Sting's injury is legit. Like, he was at dinner, so they wrote him out that way, or if they're just selling oh. the attack. Okay. Which, as you can probably imagine, involves a shoe, because it's WCW. Yes. There will be a string of those over the next couple of years. Yeah. So I, I don't know if he's legit injured, as I was saying, but he's either way he's off the show, and then we get the Jimmy Bad match instead. Okay. Tony recaps the night, but Vader comes over to scream at the announcers and ask them if they thought he lost the match. Heenan cowers and rapidly agrees that Vader definitely, definitely did not lose. <laughs> yes. Smart man. Race walks off with Vader, holding his hands high. Heenan stares after Vader in fear as Tony builds up the upcoming interview with Hogan. Tony turns to Heenan, but Heenan just notes that Vader's crazy, and if he asks you to say something, you say it, or he'll squeeze you out like an old mop. <laughs> Heenan is actually at a loss for words, which I don't think I've ever seen before, ever. It's very rare, yeah. And the crowd chants weasel at him as Tony goes over the title matches on the night and signs off. And Slambury 94 is done. So, overall thoughts on the show? Uh, that was pretty strong, honestly. I don't think it's really a bad match in the show. No, no, no. Yeah. There's one that I don't like as much for one reason or another, whether it's how sort of awkward and botchy the Terry Funk Blanchard matches or just how kind of nothing the Dustin Red Bunkers Buck matches. But otherwise, yeah, no, they're they're all pretty good matches in the show. Some better than others, some have really strong storylines going through them. So yeah. It's kind of an underrated show, I think, honestly, because I don't people think of Slam as a big show, but yeah, it works. Yeah, having never seen this series before, I was not expecting 
the first two shows to be like honestly hitting it out of the park. Yeah. But I thought this was a great show. Mm-hmm. Uh, much like last year, it was a good blend of the old and the new. It felt a little more tilted towards the current stars than last year did. Yeah, for sure. There were a couple matches this year that could be considered Legends matches, but Blanchard versus Funk involved pretty recent WCW performers. In fact, they almost brought back Blanchard a year prior as a regular performer, as you noted. Correct. And I think Funk at this point is performing regularly for ECW. Yes, he is. And Zabisco versus Regal was a recently retired performer versus a current one. Mm. So neither is quite like any of the three from the year prior. No. It's a different blend from the prior year as a result, and it feels more like a standard WCW show, but we still get a good collection of Legends promos and the Hall of Fame ceremony to honor the history of wrestling. It works really well, and the Legends again do a great job of promoting the current stars while getting to reminisce about the old days. Though they definitely should have put Thez and Ganya anywhere other than right after a hardcore match. Yeah, that was a weird choice on their part. The show just definitely feels more focused on the current in terms of actual performances. Mm-hmm. I really enjoyed the matches tonight. Uh, there were seven on the show, and of those, I thought six were quite good. Mm-hmm. Only Rhodes versus Buck was a tough watch. And that wasn't outright bad, like you said. Yeah. It's just a little bit dull for a brawl. Yeah, yeah. Otherwise, the show kept up a high energy all the way through with intense and emotional matches where the performers really seemed to bring their A-game. It was great to see performers like Larry Zabisco and especially Tully Blanchard again, Mm -hmm. and they really brought their best to the show. Aside from the Legends promos, we got a good mix of promos from current stars, which helped the current storylines feel more prominent tonight than they did on last year's show. Most were quite good, with Funk's lunacy and Sting's noble fighting champion promo being real standouts. Mm -hmm. As was, of all people, David the Hammer Schultz. Yeah, yeah, true. In his promo, anyway. Yeah, I don't think it's going to be P-based on that, but yeah, it was good. The commentary side of things was really interesting. Mm -hmm. We had Tony and Heenan, Soli and Heenan, and Tony and Jesse at various points. It somehow avoided feeling too disjointed, but it did make it a little harder for them to get into a full flow, since they had to trade off a few times. Yeah. Still, each individual team had good camaraderie, and some nice discussions on the finer points of the matches. Heenan was, as he almost always is, a real standout with his habit of praising the faces, Sting especially, on his way to an insult. Yes. What does he keep saying? Like, man, he's got a lot of fighting spirit. There's nothing between his ears. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what he says. It's like, you should just give up. There will be another opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Production was mostly fine, with the exception of the tag title hardcore match, where the camera crew was just constantly missing big moments while focusing on the general brawling for the early part of the match. Mm-hmm. As I said before, they did seem to adapt to the match flow eventually, though. Michael Buffer, though, had a heck of a night for ring-announcing mistakes, Yeah, from calling Austin a former world champion to screwing up Randy Anderson's name twice. Yes, he did. Seriously, how did no one correct him after the first time that happened? I think this is why in later shows, he's mainly the main event announcer guy, and that's really it. Maybe. When it happened a second time, I was like, okay, maybe they actually did rename him. But then Tony, in the match, calls him Randy Anderson, so I'm like, nope, that's out. Yeah. All told, this was a very fun show and an easy watch, with the same feeling of deep respect for the company's history that we got last year. Really enjoyable, 
with a bunch of good, varied matches with a variety of stars, a night that showed off what WCW had to offer quite nicely. Match of the night and MVP time. L, uh, match of the night. I had a lot of strong matches, but I have to go with Sting versus Vader. Mm-hmm. Had the right intensity, right technical prowess, night nice story to it, and using John Thought, that gives the match they built up to all night. The show was built around that. Yep, yeah, true. Yep. Yeah, I had a hard time choosing on this one. Um, on my list were Sting versus Vader, sure. Zabisco versus Regal, yeah, yeah, and Flair versus Wyndham. Sure. Of those, I'm also going to pick Sting versus Vader. I expected it to be good, but it went above and beyond, delivering an intense, emotional confrontation between them that does justice to their legendary feud. What struck me with this one in particular was Vader's sheer anger at Sting and Sting's willingness to go toe-to-toe with him for strikes. Yeah. It made it feel different from their epic Starcade 92 match, but still terrific. Mm-hmm. MVP? So, I'm torn between Sting and Vader when I'm trying to decide this, because <laughs> I was there in my match of the night, and I would like them both. I think I have to decide to Sting here, just because Sting gets the promo in the intro of the show. Mm-hmm. And he did a good job in that, even if I didn't 100% understand the logic of not winning the belt going into the match, but also being able to win it. But yeah, I thought he did a good job with that. And his, like I said, his fighting spirit they show in the match is really good. Yes. Yeah, it's a tough one for me. I do like what Vader added to his arsenal here, and he definitely brought the intensity he always does. But I think Sting in the promo gives him a slight edge to me. Okay. For me, this was another really, really hard choice. Mm-hmm. There's a ton of great performances tonight. We have Sting, Vader, Flair, Wyndham, Bad, Austin, and Regal, just to name a few. Yeah. But I am giving it to Larry Zabisco. Oh, okay. Two shows in a row. <laughs> yeah, I'd say. Interesting. Zabisco was really great in the ring tonight, proving himself a skilled veteran wrestler, more than capable of keeping pace with Regal and making his match much more than just a bit of reminiscence. It's a strong argument that Zabisco still very much belonged in the ring and could put on strong matches with the current roster. Had his usual strong character portrayal and some impressive strength and dexterity in that ending spot, Mm -hmm. and his performance just stood out the most to me tonight. And that wraps up our review of Slamboree 94. If you've enjoyed listening to us tonight, you can find us on Twitter or Facebook as Let's Go to the Ring. Links will be available in the episode description. Follow us for episode announcements and other show details, and share your own thoughts about the Slamborees as we go through. You can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, or TuneIn. And please, if you've enjoyed this show, give us a rating or review, and share the show through your favorite social media platforms to help others discover us. Many thanks to OSW Review for attendance and pay-per-view figures and to Gina Trujillo for our logo. Next up, Slamboree 95, a Legends reunion. Reunion. Again. Well, the first two shows have been classy Hall of Fame shows, so surely the third should carry on and be just as enjoyable, right? So let me see what's on it. Okay. Oh. (laughs) Oh. (laughs) Nasty Boys versus Harlem Heat in a rematch of one of our least beloved Starcade 94 matches. Lovely. The Man with No Name, ruiner of the same show back when he did have a name. 
But hey, at least the Ultimate Warrior shows up. Or a believable facsimile if you squint and have had a bit too much to drink. <laughs> yes, that's, that's accurate. I am filled with foreboding. Mm. But maybe it'll surprise me. Let's hope we're wrong. Yes. Yeah. This is Bob Moore for Alec Pridgen, signing off. Good night, everybody. Happy wrestling. It's weird that he's backstage doing interviews and not doing commentary at any point in the show. I know there's a bunch of transitions they go through, and that's one of them, I guess. You know he is actually doing commentary. Oh, I'm sorry. You're right. Yeah. (laughs)